0: It is a complicated situation. The enemy increases the number of its troops. Our boys are braver and we need more sophisticated weapons. We will pass on gratitude from our boys to the U.S. Congress and U.S. President for their support.
1: But it is not enough.
2: Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, December 21st. Poppy is off. Caitlin, I can't imagine a busier news day we haven't had in a while. I know. There's Since so the show started, I yeah. think this is it. It is. So get ready, everyone. we got a lot to tell you about. Including this, Ukrainian President Zelensky en route to Washington, D.C. this morning where he'll meet with President Joe Biden and Congress, what he plans to say to the world and the reaction from Russia just said moments ago.
3: Also, a CNN exclusive, a former Trump ethics lawyer has now been accused of telling January 6th witness Cassidy Hutchinson to give misleading testimony, what the attorney allegedly wanted her to say, and to the committee instead.
2: And if you're foolish enough to want to run Twitter, the job may be yours. That's from Elon Musk as he plans to step down.
3: But we begin in Washington this morning where just hours from now, Ukrainian President Zelensky is going to address the American people, a divided Congress and President Biden, hoping to rally support for Ukraine and his people as they brace for a harsh winter under constant bombardment from Russia. Zelensky's visit today is incredibly significant. It is his first trip outside of Ukraine since Russia's invasion in February. This, as the U.S. is about to send Ukraine the most advanced air weapon in its arsenal, the Patriot missile system. And Zelensky is not coming to the United States empty handed. Those were soldiers surrounding Zelensky on the front lines yesterday. They handed him a flag that was signed by Ukrainian troops. They said they wanted him to give it as a gift to President Biden and Congress. For more on the breaking news this morning, let's bring in MJ Lee, who is outside the White House. MJ, what time do we expect
4: President Zelensky to arrive there? Well, Caitlin, within hours, we expect to see Volodymyr Zelensky on U.S. soil. This is, of course, the wartime president who more than anybody else has come to singularly represent Ukrainian resistance to Russian aggression, uh, has become such a heroic figure to so many people around the world. And this is, as you said, his first time leaving the country since the invasion began some 300 days ago. Uh, we expect that he will be in and out of the United States in a matter of hours and it seems senior administration official telling reporters overnight that this is a trip that came together really in the last 10 days or so, that the invitation and discussion about this possible trip was, was first raised between President Biden and Zelensky in a phone call on December 11th. And once President Zelensky accepted that invitation, then the work really started between the two sides to set up this top secret visit. Obviously, given the high security concerns, it was really important that this trip remain under wraps until the last minute. And just to quickly give you a sense of what the day will look like, we expect Zelensky to arrive at the White House at around 2 p.m. or so, and then there will be a lengthy bilateral meeting in the Oval Office, followed by a press conference here at the White House, Caitlin. Okay, so they will be taking questions from reporters, and then
3: we know later today, Zelensky is going to go up to Capitol Hill. Is the White House hoping that his address to Congress can maybe change the mind or the views of some of those Republicans who have been skeptical
4: about how much support the U.S. has put behind Ukraine? You know, it seems incredibly clear that Zelensky wants to make an appeal, yes, to Republican lawmakers, but also just generally to the American public. Uh, As we head into these winter months, he wants to send a message that basically says this war is not over and Ukraine continues to need help from allies like the United States. So certainly that is a message that we expect to hear from him when he addresses uh, members of Congress on Capitol Hill tonight. And do keep in mind that President Biden is set to announce a another uh, aid package that amounts to some $1.8 billion. And a part of that includes a Patriot surface-to-air missile system. This is one of the most sophisticated long-range missiles and something that the Ukrainians have been asking for for a long time. And the training for this is going to take months. And uh, U.S. personnel are expected to be involved in training Ukrainian personnel. Again, this would happen in a third country. And I just want to leave you with one thing that a senior administration official said. They Said, obviously, this visit will show the U.S.'s continued support for Ukraine. But they also said we are not seeking to engage in a direct war with Russia, and nothing about that will change with today's visit from Zelensky. Yeah. Caitlin, though it's clear Russia could retaliate for those Patriot missile systems.
3: M.J. Lee, thank you.
2: How'd this all come about, and why? Now let's bring in now Sergey Lashenko, Leshen- a senior advisor to President Zelensky's chief of staff. Uh, it's good to have you on again. Thank you so much. Um, Uh, We've been speaking for a while here, uh, for months since this invasion began, and this is going to mark the president's first trip outside of Ukraine since Russia invaded Ukraine. Tell us about the decision to make this trip. Why now, Sergei?
5: It's really important. It's symbolic, and it's crucial moment for Ukraine to win this war. We're looking forward to get patriot system to defend our skies, to defend our citizens, because uh, last two months was... VERY DRAMATIC IN UKRAINE WHEN PUTIN STARTED ATTACK OF OUR CRITICAL INFRASTRUCTURE. YOU KNOW, IT'S REALLY A NIGHTMARE IN Kiev, IN BIG CITIES WHEN PEOPLE HAVE NO ELECTRICITY FOR 24 HOURS, FOR, 60, for, for 36 HOURS, FOR 48 hours, it's really a problem. And uh, to keep Ukrainian economy working, it's also a big deal because without electricity, it doesn't work. So we expect to have Patriot supply after this trip and we expect bilateral bipartisan and um, Congress support as well. And uh, we also looking forward to get attack the system which can uh, let us to defend our territory and to deoccupy what Putin Took under control since 28 of 24 February this year. So 50 percent of our territory is occupied thanks to our army, our president, and your support. But we still have a lot of things to deal, and we're looking well, forward to get your support there.
2: Well, let's talk about what this is going to do. What this is going to do. And you mentioned that the aid package are going to get. President Biden is set to announce another 1.8 billion dollars in security assistance. That will include um, Patriot missiles, missile defense system within the package. How do you think this air defense system is going to make a difference there on the ground?
5: The patriots will let us to survive. It's really important. By the way, president promised. He promised a few months ago in one of his addresses to Americans. I believe it was in Yale University or somewhere. He said that if... Uh, American government provided us pictures, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come personally to, to visit U.S. and to take this on the, on the board. So he keeps his word and uh, at the same time it's really important for our state to survive. Uh, because cruise uh, uh, missiles and drones destroyed our electronic electricity infrastructure, like for for 50 percent even more and without the electricity uh, we cannot we cannot work and uh, at the same time we are not ready to accept the ultimatum of Putin who wants us to uh, accept this territory occupied by Russians is going to be part of Russia we don't we don't we don't want to do this we going to fight for, for the victory and I believe it's in the best interest of US citizens as well to keep democracy working and to show dictators that they cannot dictate the will to another nations
2: to independent nations or to Listen, this is quite a bold move. I'm sure there are many security concerns and safety concerns for not only President Zelensky, but also President Biden and what have you, and all of the folks around him. You think it is a smart move for Zelensky to visit at this point, considering, you know, Vladimir Putin and what's happening?
5: First of all, he promised to come, and he's coming. Second, he was yesterday in Bakhmut. This is frontline area, not just a frontline area. It's a battlefield area when the president was, let's say, under the sharing of Russians. But he wanted to show our soldiers that they are not alone there, together with our leadership. He provided them awards. He provided them best words from our Civilians uh, with big appreciation what they are doing to defend not only Ukraine but Europe from this dictator. And of course, for president, is the, I think the best moment to travel because this is the end of the year when you're going to have some political turbulence in the US. Uh, so I believe his address to uh, Congress is really important to show both political parties that uh, we're looking forward to get the support because we're fighting for values shared by American citizens 200 years ago when you established your state, your country.
2: Just real quickly, do you believe that this latest round of US assistance is going to bring this war any closer to an end, Sergey?
5: Of course, and it will not only make it, it will let Ukrainians to come back because without Ukrainians living in Ukraine, it's really difficult to restore our economy, to keep our factories, our industry working. And uh, people really live in Ukraine now just because they cannot survive without electricity with 60, like, um, I think 36 hours without electricity is a big deal, you know, when people have no access to water supply as well because electricity, lack of electricity caused the problem with water supply. So uh, this is crucial. It will stop people suffering, it will stop people dying, but it will also make us closer to the victory. It will let our security system work properly and our weapon supply industry properly working as well. But it's also important for our civilians to live in Ukraine, to stay in Ukraine, not to make Ukraine fail its state. But to win on the front line, we're really looking forward for your support, not only in Patriots, but in other weapons to be provided to Ukraine. Because we, you, we know, we demonstrated on the front line in Kharkiv region, in Kherson region last three, four months that the Ukrainian army is able to deoccupy. Ukrainian army is one of the strongest in the world now. By the way, it's really important for NATO to ask Ukraine to join NATO because it will make NATO stronger okay. when NATO face, um, face challenges in, in the coming future.
2: Sergey Leshenko, senior advisor to President Zelensky's chief of staff. Thank you. We appreciate you appearing. I appreciate your
5: interest.
3: So for more perspective on that, let's bring in CNN's national security analyst, David Sanger. David, this visit of President Zelensky to Washington was almost unthinkable 10 months ago.
6: Well, 10 months ago, Caitlin, he wasn't supposed to be alive to make this visit. Mm -hmm. You know, the Russian plan was to decapitate the leadership, install their own Friendly um, leader of, of Ukraine, and uh, that President Zelensky would be forgotten by now. So the first thing that's happening in this visit is just a giant uh, warning to Putin that his plan had completely failed, that he'd been humiliated on the battlefield. That's the good news, and I think you'll see um, you'll see Zelensky try to do a very Churchillian kind of speech. In fact, Churchill himself came to Congress shortly after uh, December 7th, 1941. He came the day after Christmas to sort of rally the United States the way Zelensky's hoping to do. I think that the other side of this, though, is Zelensky knows he's headed not only into a long, hard winter, but into what could well be years of conflict. And he's got to begin to get Washington thinking about what long-term support for Ukraine looks like.
2: You, you said it you said years of conflict that was my last question then do you think it's going to be any closer to an end but you understood what i was getting at when i said do you think it was a smart move for him to do this considering the security around this it's kind of in your face to vladimir putin it, will, will the kremlin view this as provocative is the question
6: i think that they will they have viewed everything about the fact that zelensky is up talking to the ukrainian people and to the american people and to the west every night uh, on the Internet uh, to be a provocative move. This will also be provocative and we're expecting actually to hear from Putin uh, today. He's supposed to be giving a, a speech as well to a, a Russian defense ministry group. Um, whether they're talking past each other or to each other is a little bit hard to tell. but. I think that for Zelensky, it's a little bit tricky. First of all, there's the logistics, as you suggest, Don. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure the US Air Force is helping with this. They did the last time he left the country, which was to go to the Munich Security Conference the weekend before the war. Um, But the bigger trick, I think, at this point is to sustain American interests. Zelensky understands that the US enters these kinds of conflicts, particularly one with this kind of moral clarity, with great enthusiasm, and then frequently loses interest.
3: And you heard Don ask Sergey about the Patriot missile systems, or what he told you about, how Zelensky said if the U.S. would give them to him, that he would come yeah. to the U.S. to thank them, essentially. That is part of what's happening today. President Biden is going to be talking about that at the White House. Russia, though, has promised to retaliate, basically, if the United States does install those. And and you've said you believe that they'll likely be installed in Kyiv.
6: I think they'll be installed a- around Kyiv, someplace around Kyiv. This is... Um, A significant step forward, but a limited one. We don't have very many of these systems. They had to scrounge around to just find a Patriot battery that could go to Kyiv. And I think what you'll probably see is that this is announced along with announcements from other Western allies of similar systems that would go elsewhere. It's a pretty expensive way to be defending your electric power plants and your water supplies. These are really made for big strategic missiles that might come in to destroy the capital. And of course, there's concern, which you've heard from the administration, that Iran may move from providing drones to providing these larger strategic missiles. You know,
2: it's interesting that this is happening. This meeting is happening in the United States. And then you have Xi Jinping uh, and Dmitry Medvedev get a meeting in Beijing as well. So it's kind of It's interesting to see what's happening
6: on the two sides here. You know, Don, I think when we look back at this year, obviously the war will be our biggest single thing. But the other element that has really reordered the world here is what's the nature of the relationship between China and Russia? Mm -hmm. Obviously, you've seen Putin and President Xi speak frequently. Uh, Putin went to the Olympics in the early days just before the war, Um, The Chinese have been careful in what they're giving him. They're not giving him weaponry directly after the U.S. has warned them. But clearly there is a deepening relationship there. And that's the bigger challenge for President Biden, because we are now in confrontation, if not direct conflict, with the two major nuclear superpowers. And I can't remember the last time in our lifetimes that's happened. It's a frightening moment.
3: Yeah, historical moment. David Sanger, no one better to talk about this with, so thank you for joining us this morning.
6: Thank you, guys.
2: Now on to the former president and his tax returns. Six years' worth are set to be released in the coming days. The House Ways and Means Committee voting along party lines to make that happen. This is a years-long fight between the former president and congressional Democrats coming to a head, and we're learning some new details about what could be in those documents? Straight to scene as Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill for us this morning. Good morning, Lauren. One of the revelations to come out of this was that Trump was not properly audited by the IRS during his time as, as president. I mean, he has had some very lucky moments. How big of a deal is that?
7: Well, it's such a significant revelation, Don, cuz if you remember Richard Neal, the House Ways and Means Committee chairman, when he requested Trump's tax returns, the whole reason he wanted them, he argued in court, was because he needed to see if this mandatory audit program at IRS was working properly. What's supposed to happen is when a new president or vice president comes into office, the IRS is supposed to review their tax returns, but according to Democrats report that they just released last night, one thing that was clear to them is that this This program just was not functioning as it was supposed to. Richard Neal argued it was basically non-existent. The IRS did not review Trump's returns until 2019, according to Democrats, when Richard Neal sent a request for Trump's taxes, arguing he needed them because he wanted to see if this program was working. The argument from Democrats is that this program just was not Acting as it was supposed to, and as part of their effort to shore this up, they are revealing that they're going to move forward with some kind of legislation. Nancy Pelosi vowing that she's going to try to advance it in upcoming days. But we should note there's just a couple days left of this session. In a couple of weeks, Republicans are going to gain control of the House of Representatives, and there's really no chance this would pass in the U.S. Senate, even if the House could have a vote in the next couple of days, Don.
2: I'm interested in his, you know, his payment history, because it says that he, you know, he was he's being um, what it shows is generating huge net operating losses and then carrying them forward for years afterward to zero out his tax liability. So what is the deal here? I mean, some years he paid nothing and people may be surprised. It may be eye popping to see how little taxes he paid.
7: Yeah, we're definitely going to get a lot more information once we see the returns that the Ways and Means Committee voted to release. They have to do some redactions on those. But one thing we did get last night was the Joint Committee on Taxation released their own report. Now, these are sort of the nonpartisan number crunchers up here on Capitol Hill. They don't have any investigative power. But a couple observations they made are that, yes, one of the patterns that they noticed was that, Donald Trump carried forward a lot of losses, millions in losses. This isn't something that other businessmen and women don't do, but it is something that, you know, raises some questions about what should be done in the future and whether or not this needs some further investigation. Again, the Joint Committee on Taxation not saying it was wrong, but just raising some questions about what exactly was deducted and whether it was deducted properly. Again, we have to get those fuller returns to get a sense of what exactly is inside those
2: all right. Lauren, thank you very much. We're learning about that, and then we're gonna get the full report from the January 6th committee. So there's a, a lot paper. Of, as a lot I said, reading. there's a lot a lot of reading for us today. To so a lot of news, so stay tuned. Including this a winter bomb cyclone about to drop on a big chunk of the country, and it couldn't come at a worse time. How airlines and travelers are getting ready.
3: Plus, the White House says it's okay for Title II to expire, but maybe just not yet. And while the legal fight is dragging on in the courts, people at the border are the ones who are caught in the middle. We'll take you there live. More CNN this morning to come after the break. All right, this morning we have some terrible timing for terrible weather. Just four days out from Christmas when everyone obviously is traveling More than 70 million Americans find themselves under winter weather alerts as a storm system known as a bomb cyclone is set to cripple travel in the plains in the Midwest this week. Multiple airlines are already issuing travel waivers ahead of blizzard conditions, flash freezes and a sharp drop in temperatures. Where it's the worst, visibility may be reduced to near zero as wind chills on the backside of the storm as low as minus 40 may promote frostbite in as little as 10 minutes. CNN has this storm covered all over the United States. Omar Jimenez is live at Chicago's O'Hare Airport. And our meteorologist Jennifer Gray is standing by in the Weather Center. Omar, let's get to you first because this is going to be the impact of this storm is for the travelers who are going to be at airports like the one that you're standing in right now. So how are people bracing for it?
0: Yeah, Caitlin, I mean, the travelers we've been talking to this morning have really been people who have moved their flights to today to try and get ahead of those blizzard-like conditions expected tomorrow and through Friday evening. We just talked to one uh, just a few moments ago who told us about how his travel plans completely changed so that they could make the most out of their holiday vacation. Take a listen. I think my dad just saw in the news that there's going to be a huge blizzard Thursday, and uh, my brother only has a few days off while he's... uh, and while we visit him, so we didn't want our flight to get delayed and miss out on some of that time. So we thought we'd just move it up uh, two days just to avoid it altogether. And, and it's not just here in Chicago, obviously, throughout this entire Region, there are places that are expected to see blizzard like conditions. Wind chill going down is no is negative 35, and these are places that obviously fly to each other frequently. And so you see how the issues are starting to develop, and this recipe for, for potential disaster for a lot of flyers when, at least here in O'Hare, tomorrow is expected to be the busiest travel day, coinciding with the beginning of some of these conditions.
8: Yeah,
3: Omar, and I'm looking at at the major cities that are going to be impacted. This is where all the major airports are that people are connecting in and out of, in Chicago, in Minneapolis. And so uh, are people saying that they're, they're nervous they may not make it home if they're not able to move their flights up or change their plans?
0: Well, and that's just, that's, that exact sense is whats is what we're getting. A lot of people here in Chicago travel to Minneapolis, have family in Buffalo. And it's not like these aren't places that can deal with snow or cold. But once you start seeing the combination of snow wind, extreme cold, that is the recipe that the National Weather Service here in Chicago is saying that people should be watching out for. And that even if the snow totals don't end up like what we saw in Buffalo a few weeks ago or earlier this season, that that is not the full story. It's really a combination of these elements that will create nasty conditions, not just for flights, but for the many people that are going to be driving tomorrow and into Friday as well.
3: Yeah, a lot of tough travel ahead for people. Omar, thank you.
2: I've spent many a days in Chicago, O'Hare, waiting and waiting. Delayed? And delayed <laughs> and waiting. <laughs> wow. So what do you need to know if you are hitting the roads for the holiday? Let's bring in now meteorologist Jennifer Gray in the Weather Center to get the latest on those storm warnings. I think the technical term for this is dam.
9: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good one. I think that's that's an accurate description of the storm. This is going to be a Christmas week people are not going to forget. This is going to be huge, and tomorrow is going to be the biggest impact day for travel by far. You can see the storm is getting going in the northern plains. We're going to continue to see this intensify throughout the next 24 hours. We have winter weather advisories, winter storm warnings, blizzard warning in effect across western Minnesota. This is for tomorrow through Friday uh, as we will see visibility down to nothing blowing snow, winds of 50 miles per hour or more. And then this storm will really intensify over the Great Lakes. That's where we could see a foot to a foot and a half of snow. So your biggest travel delays for Thursday are going to be Chicago and then up and down the I-95 corridor because we're going to have very heavy rain on ahead of the system. We have wind chill warning stretching all the way down to Oklahoma. Wind chill watches all the way to the Texas-Mexico border. This chill is going to be felt. If you don't get the snow, you will Get the cold. Look at some of these Southern cities spending 80 hours below zero in Birmingham. Guys, we're going to have travel issues, windchill issues, we're gonna have pipes burst. People could see frostbite set in in as little as five minutes across the Northern Plains. It's going to be huge. Uh, <laughs> I'm flying to Birmingham on Thursday, so I'm looking
3: very closely at that second point there.
2: What does that say? Yeah, it's gonna be cold even that far south. Of yeah. B- oof.
3: Wow. Yeah, it's rough. We don't have coats in Alabama. <laughs>
10: Better
2: you than me. <laughs> Thanks, Jennifer. We'll check back. We appreciate it. Thanks, Straight ahead here on CNN this morning, what CNN exclusive just uncovered, a CNN exclusive just uncovered about a Trump-backed attorney who allegedly told Cassidy Hutchinson to mislead the January 6th committee.
3: Plus, Elon Musk says he will resign as Twitter's chief executive, but not right away. What he's looking for in his successor, and who's willing to take that job coming up?
2: What is happening with Tesla as he's doing all of this?
3: all right welcome back to cnn this morning ahead this hour the biden administration is gearing up for the end of title 42 as the supreme court considers whether to keep it in place we are live on the border plus is there someone out there quote foolish enough to replace elon musk as the head of twitter that's what he wants to know before he is stepping down and a children's medicine shortage has sent parents scrambling as flu season is well underway. What some drugstores are now doing is the demand is skyrocketing.
2: And this morning, the Biden administration says it does want the Supreme Court to end Title 42 border restrictions, but not just yet. They are asking for at least a week to prepare for the possibility of migrant arrivals to double once the policy is lifted. Rosa Flores live in Brownsville, Texas this morning for us. Good morning to you, Rosa. We're looking at another week of Title 42. How is that playing out on the ground?
11: Well, you know, anxiety is really building. I'm here in Brownsville, Texas, which you see behind me as the border wall and across the river in Matamoros. I've been talking to uh, the migrants who are there. They're in a camp. They're waiting and have been waiting for weeks for Title 42 to lift. And they're losing patience. Take a look at this video that we obtained from one of the migrants. It shows migrants using inflatable rafts to cross the Rio Grande. And if you look closely, you can see, I mean, this is broad daylight. There's a group of migrants that are congregating on the Mexican side, and they're also providing commentary. You can hear them say that they're tired of waiting. And also they point out that across the river, they can see U.S. immigration authorities watching all of this unfold. And so, Kaylin uh, and Don, I got, I, I got to share, like a lot of these migrants are saying they, they were really hoping that today, the day that Title 42 was expected to lift, that they were going to be able to walk to a port of entry, like the one that you see behind me, and turn themselves into authorities. And they wanted to enter the U.S. legally, but they were preparing for the worst. That's why they got those inflatable rafts as well.
2: Yeah. Rosa Flores on the border Force. Thank you very much, Rosa. Appreciate it.
3: All right. New this morning, Elon Musk says that he will step down as Twitter CEO following that poll. Just not quite yet. First, he says that he needs to, quote, find someone foolish enough to take the job. In his words, that decision after, as you saw, more than 57 percent of people responded saying that, yes, he should step down when he posted on Twitter asking users to decide for him, promising to oblige by whatever they decided. This comes after weeks of tumultuous leadership decisions and user backlash on Twitter. Most recently, he sparked controversy after he suspended several journalists who covered him and also banned links to other social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon, which is that Twitter competitor, and Truth Social. That was a policy he reversed less than 24 hours later. So here to discuss is CNN's chief business correspondent and early start anchor, Christine Romans.
2: Mm.
10: What I mean, every day.
2: You couldn't pay me enough. That may be the truest thing that he said recently is, if anyone is foolish enough, you could not pay me enough right now. Because he
10: owns it. It's not a public company anymore. It's his personal company, Twitter is, and he has to find somebody who's going to run it who's going to run it and essentially work for him, right? And you've seen his erratic behavior, his decisions and then reversals of his decisions, and honestly just riffing about what this company does and what he wants to do with this company. This has been a nightmare for Tesla shareholders. He is the CEO of Tesla, and Tesla is a public company that has the (coughs) real investors, mom and pop investors are invested in Tesla. That stock is down 30, almost 40% since he took over at Twitter, and it's down more than 60, 66%. This year, one analyst, Dan Ives, calls us a painful nightmare situation for Tesla shareholders. And he says that Musk is using Tesla as his personal ATM to sell Tesla shares so that he can raise money to fund what's happening at Twitter. So you've got Twitter, which is a rather a rather small platform, private company that is getting all of this attention from Elon Musk. When you have a big public company making electric cars that investors have exposure to that he is the ceo of so it's a very fascinating situation here there are big shareholders in tesla who want elon musk to stay focused on tesla let go of twitter here
3: the numbers are crazy Tesla stock has lost
10: $565 billion in market value since it peaked at more than a trillion in late 2021, a year ago. I know. It's amazing. And now, look, there's been a a run on these tech stocks, right? I mean, tech stocks are down worse than the overall market. The S&P is down 20 percent. Tech stocks are down worse. So there's there's also this high interest rate environment and tech stocks have been overvalued. And so so there's a couple of things going on there. But Tesla is doing worse than some of these other uh, other tech companies, and there's a and it is a time when Tesla shareholders, many of them, think that Elon Musk has got to stop the distraction with Twitter and get focused back again on what his, his core his core companies are.
2: I just like I said, you couldn't pay me. Enough. I don't I don't understand I what I don't understand the strategy you're considering. The money actually does come from Tesla, right? right. And so, and you have Twitter, as you said, sucking all the oxygen. Out of the room when,
10: And you've got Mastodon, 180,000 people joined something called Mastodon in one day last week. Um, another, uh, something called Post has 180,000 people on its wait list. 20,000 people, 20, people had been invited to join. 16,000 have activated. So you have smart people on Twitter who are talking about where are we going to go and continue this conversation. Point. Because this noise here on Twitter is not good anymore. Well,
2: that's the point because everyone says, oh, but Twitter can't go away. It's too big to fail. But that's not true because someone will come in. Right. Mastodon
3: that, and Post, yeah. a lot but of people is, are going to them. Is
10: Twitter too big? I mean, I don't my think parents so. don't even, they're like, why do you keep talking about Twitter and Elon Musk and Twitter? Come like, here. Who, who, why are you talking about this? Because it's...
12: <laughs> it's <laughs> my parents
2: I are
12: like,
10: you cars. Why are you talking? What, okay. what is Twitter? I'm
3: the Twitter user here yeah, at the table <laughs> Is going to be like, okay, but I love I use Twitter, it and I think it's really, really functional. Would you, you go someplace else? I don't
10: know. Are you know. seeing people go Donnie's trying to
3: get me to sign up for Mastodon, so we'll see. Really?
2: What's important... As we should point out, it's, a, it's an important news aggregate, but it's also yep. important for people who live in places where there's not a free media. Agree. Where restrictions. Agree. Like Iran yeah. and such. Oh,
10: it's a game changer in some of these places. You're absolutely right. But
2: someone will pick up the slack, right? The vacuum, if there's a vacuum, there'll be other platforms where people can go to, like you guys said, Mastodon or whatever. But, you know, Caitlin, it's going to be tough for her to <laughs> get off of Twitter.
10: I'm not paying eight bucks a month. All right, blue check.
2: I wish I could quit you. That's what she's saying about Twitter.
10: Jane <laughs> Robbins. just tell me but we don't want to quit know. you. Would but... you be my filter? <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll give you a heads <laughs> Thank up. you.
2: All right, thanks so much.
3: All right, it has been a brutal respiratory virus season for millions of Americans. It's also forced U.S. drugstores to limit purchases of children's pain medication. Some parents are being limited on how much they can buy. We'll tell you those numbers next.
2: Plus, the Biden administration launching a task force to investigate how American-made parts ended up in Iranian-made drones. The CNN exclusive reports straight ahead. Welcome back, everyone. So if you have a sick kid at home, you know the struggle is real to find a pain medicine for them. And now pharmacies are limiting the number of bottles customers can purchase as cases of the flu, COVID, and RSV remain high. Now, check these out. These are the signs that one of our producer's husband found at at a CVS, a maximum of two children's pain relievers per customer. And he finally found some on the shelf after trying five other Stores. Our medical correspondent is Dr. Tara Narula, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, good what is morning. going on here? Like what, what is <laughs> happening with the manufacturers here? Right. The supply chain, what is this? Is it just the culmination of this sort of trifecta we have of different things?
13: It is, and we actually we heard Poppy tell us earlier that she spent an hour walking around Brooklyn. So, I mean, this is not unusual. People are reporting these shortages all over the country, also in Canada as well. And it's been going on now for almost a month. And really, it is a demand issue. Uh, we know that sales of these particular drugs are up about 65% compared to the same time last year. Unfortunately, when we try to figure out When is this going to end? We spoke to an official at the Consumer Healthcare Products Association, and they said there is no real timeline yet for when this supply is going to catch up to the demand, although manufacturers say they are really working 24-7 to reach Stores with the product now, CVS and Walgreens taking that step that you just said, which is to limit so that we can promote equitable access so people aren't hoarding at home. And so, CVS is saying, Look, you can only buy two products in store or online of these favor of these fever or pain relievers for kids. And Walgreens is limiting it to six purchases online, there's no in store limit. So, I think the reality is once cases start to come down, then we are going to see this get better. But for now, this is the situation um, you're seeing it play out. But when do you think cases like will come down? Like, could this last through the spring, or it, what are we looking at? It's possible. We are seeing obviously peak already in RSV. Flu cases were the lowest last week as compared to the weeks before. So I have a feeling over the next. Month or two, we will start to get some relief from this, but we're probably realistically talking about into February.
2: So March. then, what do you do if you're a parent and your kid's sick, is running a fever, and you don't you don't have the medication? What do you do?
13: It's scary as a parent to see your kid feeling unwell, to feel them burning up, and not know and not have the appropriate way to treat them. The reality is, for a lot of parents, you don't have to treat a fever. We we keep trying to get this message across. You know, if your child is over two or three months and they have a fever um, and they're active, they're eating and drinking, they're going to the bathroom, urinating, uh, this is not something that necessarily needs to be treated. If the fever lasts for several days, if it's very high, if, as I said, they're not keeping down liquids and staying hydrated, um, then that's concerning.
2: Well, that's like the old school, because in our parents, I'm sick, I have a fever, go get in bed.
13: Right. right? And there was no, I mean,
2: so is there, should we kind of go back to that? Because you don't have to treat every single symptom with a medication.
13: You don't. And we've talked about this as well. I mean, cool compresses, lukewarm baths, taking clothes off the kid, keeping them in a cool room. I mean, there are other ways to treat it. um, But it is hard, I will say, as a parent, to have your kid looking miserable and feeling miserable and not being able to give them anything. Yeah. Um, Especially at Christmas. Especially at Christmas. (laughs) Thank you for (laughs) that update. Thank you. All right, CNN
3: this morning has an exclusive report on a former Trump ethics attorney who allegedly told a former Trump aide to mislead the January 6th committee. We have details on that next.
2: Plus, it has been five weeks since four University of Idaho students were brutally murdered and still no arrests. An attorney says a local police may not be the right team for the job. That's straight ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
3: We have a CNN exclusive this morning, a stunning allegation from the House January 6th committee. And CNN is now learning that the committee says the top ethics attorney in the Trump White House urged a key witness to give them misleading testimony. Sources say that Stephen Pasantino urged Cassidy Hutchinson to tell the committee she did not recall details that she did recall. Details like her testimony that former President Trump insisted on being taken to the Capitol despite knowing there were armed protesters there. Pasantino told her to avoid topics that would cast a bad light on Trump, urging her, quote, no, 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 no. We don't want to go there. Here with the exclusive reporting is CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, we saw this in the summary that the the committee released and there was some speculation about who this person was and now we've learned
14: more about it. Exactly, Caitlin. The committee did not identify these people, but CNN has learned that Stefan Passantino, the top ethics attorney in the Trump White House, is the lawyer who allegedly advised his then-client, former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, to tell the committee that she did not recall details, that she actually did. And interestingly, Trump's Save America Political Action Committee funded Pasentino and his law firm, including paying for his representation of Hutchinson. Now, in a statement to CNN, Pasantino said he didn't advise Hutchinson to mislead the committee. He said, quote, I represented Ms. Hutchinson honorably, ethically, and fully consistent with her sole interests as she communicated them to me. now Before her public testimony, Hutchinson dropped him and got a new lawyer. But Caitlin, this is just one of several instances in which the committee has accused members of Trump's orbit of trying to obstruct the panel's investigation. And today, the House Select Committee is also expected to release the full final report. What are what are we expecting of this to look like? Well, Caitlin, in addition to releasing this comprehensive final report, the committee is also expected to begin releasing transcripts of some of the interviews that it's conducted behind closed doors. Now, Caitlin, there is one thing, pretty much just one thing that people on all sides of this, DOJ prosecutors, Trump attorneys, lawmakers who are hostile to the committee, that they all agree on, and that is they all want to see these transcripts. And a source tells CNN that the Justice Department special counsel, Jack Smith, he sent a letter to the committee earlier this month requesting all of the information from this investigation. We've learned the committee has been sending documents and transcripts in the last week focusing on evidence related to former Trump attorney John Eastman and former White House chief of staff Mark Meadows. Interestingly, the Justice Department also has Mark Meadows' text messages, which you may remember those provided some of the most significant evidence released in this investigation so far. But in talking with the former president's legal team, they also want to see these transcripts. They believe there have been witnesses who have given testimony that undercuts the committee's narrative and that was excluded from public hearings. Now, the committee chairman tells CNN they will release hundreds of transcripts, but some witnesses with sensitive material the panel has, has vowed to protect. Can I jump right.
2: in before you think? ask course. her? Paul, let me ask you something. You're an attorney, right?
14: Recovering, but yes.
2: Okay, so all the time we hear people in depositions, right? You and I were discussing this, in depositions and in the courts asking. They're like, I don't recall. And they're constantly saying, (laughs) I don't recall, I don't recall. Is it really unethical to say, to advise someone to say, I don't recall? Because we hear it all the time, and you know they do recall. Well,
14: well, here the problem is it appears that they had a conversation where he knew that she did recall some of these things. So if you Mm -hmm. intentionally advise a client to mislead a committee, which is is the the allegation that the committee was making, though they didn't specify who, you know, that that's really playing at the edges of what is ethically ethically sound. And and again, this is part of a larger pattern that the committee is trying to set up, arguing that people in Trump's orbit were trying to obstruct this investigation. Now, there's no indication there'll be charges or anything like that, but ethically, no. If a client tells you, I remember this, to tell them, be like, no, no, you don't. I mean, that's that's really pushing pushing yeah. the bounce.
2: Well, we certainly learned a lot about the legal system over the last <laughs> seven years. Uh, <laughs> since this, uh, the former administration was in office.
14: Right. Paul Reed,
3: thanks so much. Thank you.
2: Okay, also this morning, the Biden Administration Task Force is investigating why the hundreds of Iranian drones that Russia is firing into Ukraine have been found with American-made parts inside. Officials are scrambling to cut off the supply by urging companies to monitor supply chains more closely. as Natasha Bertrand joins us now with this exclusive report. Good morning to you. How do officials believe Iran is getting the parts?
15: You know, Don, these are extremely easily accessible components that the Iranians are getting. And that is part of the major issue here, why uh, the administration is so concerned and has launched this really expansive task force spanning across several uh, administration agencies to try to figure out how to stop that. Because the micro components, these microelectronics, things like chips, for example, that are going into these Iranian drones, are available online. I mean, these are things that are being sold by resellers uh, that companies in the United States don't necessarily have full visibility into at all times. And just to really drive home the scale of the problem here, Last month, this uh, U.K.-based investigative firm called Conflict Armament Research, which tracks these kinds of issues, examined uh, some of the downed Iranian drones that have been found in Ukraine and found that 82 percent of the components in those drones were actually manufactured in the United States. So it's a really huge issue that the administration is trying to tackle now.
2: All right. Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much. Appreciate it.
15: Still ahead this morning, a dramatic
3: surprise visit to Washington. Zelensky is going to meet with President Biden today and also address Congress in just a matter of hours. All right, now to sports this morning in the NBA. The Phoenix Suns are on the verge of being sold in a record-setting deal. According to multiple reports, 42-year-old mortgage lending tycoon Matt Ishbia will sell out $4 billion to buy a majority stake in the team, almost doubling the previous record for an NBA franchise when the Brooklyn Nets sold for more than $2.3 billion in 2019. The WNBA's Phoenix Mercury will also be included in the deal. And Ishbia played basketball in college, winning a national title for Tom Izzo in Michigan State in 2000, as you remember, The current Suns owner, Robert Sarver, put the team up for sale in September after a damning report into the racist and sexist behavior during his time as the owner. We also have shocking news in baseball overnight. In a stunning turn of events, the shortstop, Carlos Correa, now appears to be heading to the New York Mets. On Tuesday, the San Francisco Giants postponed his introductory press conference. Reports were that there was a difference of opinion over his physical. Well, the Mets swooped in and are now reportedly signing him to a 12-year, $315 million deal. He's agreed to this with the Giants last week, we were told. The Mets already had the highest payroll in baseball history before this. Now it is way up there.
2: $350 million? 15? We're in the wrong business. We're in the wrong (laughs) business. Well, my pitching
3: arm's not very good, so I'm going to probably stay in this business.
2: (laughs) Oh, Oh, boy.
3: All right, and Cena This Morning is going to continue right now.
2: Good morning, everyone. You know, we say to you, there's a lot to get to, there's a lot to get to. It really is a very busy Wednesday. As you pointed out, this is probably the busiest since we began the show in November, right? Yeah, Yeah. just historic. A lot going on. It's going to start in Washington because it will be a massive day in D.C. President Vladimir Zelensky will arrive in just hours. He's going to speak with President Joe Biden and Congress after more than 300 days of war. We're on the ground in Ukraine.
3: Plus, here in the U.S., a bomb cyclone and blizzards are set to disrupt your holiday travel across the United States. What airlines want travelers to know about
2: their options? And the Biden administration gearing up for the end of Title 42, but officials say they're not quite ready for it to end. What they are asking the Supreme Court to do, we have all of that straight ahead, but we're going to begin with this. President Zelensky's surprise trip to Washington, D.C. It is his first trip outside of Ukraine since Russia's invasion, and it comes at a very pivotal time as the U.S. prepares to announce nearly $2 billion in military aid for Ukraine's defenses, including Patriot missile systems. And moments ago, Zelensky was seen arriving in poland you see the pictures right there we have learned that he traveled by train to a town near the polish ukrainian border as part of his journey here so it is underway straight to cnn's will ripley in the region in ukraine for us well hello to you how important is this visit for ukraine
16: Good morning, Don. It's an incredibly important visit for Ukraine and the Ukrainian people who are celebrating the news that Patriot Missile Defense Systems will be arriving, although the reality uh, is that the war continues. Just hours after President Zelensky tweeted that he was on his way to the U.S. to meet with President Biden, the air raid sirens sounded here across Ukraine, pretty much like every other day of this conflict since it began back on February 24th. But the big difference, of course, is that Zelensky physically no longer in Kyiv or uh, actively in the country on his way out. Uh, it, it is the first overseas trip by the Ukrainian president. It shows, uh, from the perspective of commentators here, a level of confidence that he's willing to leave to go to the United States for this major announcement. Uh, there is not any concern about uh, the security of Ukraine or his own security leaving. Uh, but nonetheless, the Ukrainian people do understand that he has a pretty uh, big challenge ahead as he meets with lawmakers in the U.S. Some of whom are, are growing increasingly skeptical that the war should drag on as long as the Ukrainians say it needs to. They want to see. They want to see the return. Turn to pre-2014 uh, territorial control by Ukraine, which would include retaking illegally annexed Crimea. Of course, Russia took that um, almost nine years ago. That's pretty much started this whole thing. And so from the Ukrainian perspective, this war doesn't end until they get back everything that Russia took. But he might find a very different message when he meets with U.S. lawmakers. He's certainly gotten some pressure uh, from members of NATO, including the French president, calling for peace talks with Russia, Don.
2: Of course, the Kremlin has something to say about this. The spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, says that the Uh, AND THE SUPPLYING OF ARMS DOES NOT BODE WELL FOR UKRAINE. WHAT DOES THIS VISIT MEAN FOR THE FUTURE OF THE WAR?
16: Well, look. I mean, it's viewed here in Ukraine as posturing by Russia, empty threats or you know legitimate threats. The fact is, is that Russian bombs continue raining down on this country on a regular basis, devastating the civilian infrastructure. The Ukrainians say they need these weapons, they need this assistance, and they're going to need it for the long haul, including those Patriot missile defense systems, which they hope could be a game changer once Ukrainians are adequately adequately trained to stop the bombs that are coming from Russian bombers that currently Ukraine does not have the capability to shoot down. However, uh, uh, again, they know here that, the, that Russia and Putin uh, basically wants to put everything they have into this war. They're assembling troops up to the northern border in Belarus. There continues to be very intense fighting uh, on the east and to the south. And there's going to be increasing skepticism as the, the, the world pumps billions of dollars into Ukraine. And yet the lines are basically holding. Ukraine isn't retaking much territory these days, but they're not giving it up either, Don. All right. Well, Ripley,
2: thank you.
3: Joining us now for perspective on all of this and how significant it is, CNN's chief international anchor, Christiane Amanpour, who interviewed Ukrainian President Zelensky and the first lady of Ukraine actually last month. Christiane, this is just incredibly significant. I mean, it's been 300 days. He has not left Ukraine. And now his first trip outside during this war is to the United States.
17: Absolutely, Caitlin. And of course, the United States is his biggest backer, and he has thanked them over and again, including in my interview, and thanked the American people, knowing that it is taxpayers' money that is helping Ukraine with the weapons that it needs. This is an incredibly important punctuation point because of where we are in the war, and because of the change in seasons. You know, many have likened and, and have pointed to Winston Churchill, the famous British World War II leader, uh, as the epitome and the example of a leader during wartime. And many, over the last 10 months of the war in Ukraine, have sort of you know, compared Zelensky and his wartime leadership to that of Winston Churchill. And most importantly, in the rallying of international support for the defense of Ukraine. So this is massively important. He will want all sorts of modern weapons. He will thank, obviously, for the Patriots, the most sophisticated anti-air missile defense system that he's got so far and that's available so far. Um, And then they're going to want to have Presumably, other things like more and more drones and and sophisticated weapon systems to combat the air that the air that Russia controls with its missile attacks. So that's the important thing. Zelensky is bringing with him. He said in his press conference a flag from the soldiers on the front line of Bakhmut. That is the key city right now, the key town in the east on the eastern front. That it is being pummeled and fought vociferously over by both Russia and Ukraine. The president of Ukraine went over there met with the troops, took a flag of Ukraine, had it signed by the troops and says he will deliver it to the American people and the American Congress as a message of thanks. When I asked him even a month ago, and they still stick to this, whether it's enough already and that they should bow to certain sectors of the international opinion who say they should negotiate, he said, absolutely not. He said, that's just what Putin wants. Here's what he told me.
5: The current military and political leadership of Russia needs a pause, in one form or another, just like with the Minsk agreement or some other agreements, they needed a pause. They would gather up their strength, money, weapons. They would get ready. They would lay out the information for their own society. And when all of that has been prepared, they start the offensive. Because there is only one goal, to destroy our independence.
17: And so the Ukrainians believe that the Russians are somehow preparing a new ground offensive, including keeping Kyiv in play, sometime, uh, you know, during or after the winter. According to Fiona Hill, America's most senior and most informed Russia expert, basically Putin wants to control Ukraine, erase Ukraine from the map, and stop American and European aid to Ukraine. That's his objective right now. And Ukraine obviously wants exactly the opposite to get the kind of weapons that it needs to fight for the fight that America and the world says is all of our fight. The fight against autocracy and the fight for democracy. All
2: right. Christian Navarpur. Christian, thank you very much and Merry Christmas to you. Good to see you. Thanks. And to you. Yes. So this morning, Ukrainian President Zelensky's risky and highly secretive White House visit is unfolding amid extraordinary security measures. Zelensky was very keen to visit the U.S., but could only agree once the parameters met his needs. So joining us now, Kylie Atwood uh, with the very latest and Kylie, good morning to you. What kinds of heightened security measures are being taken at this point?
18: Well, Don, realistically, we'll probably know a lot more about that after this visit has concluded, because what the Biden administration, what Zelensky is trying to do is really uh, keep close tabs on all information about this visit, because, as you said, it is risky. They did try and keep it confidential for as long as they could. But what we do know is that there were security consultations between the U.S. and those around Zelensky that started about a week ago. And President Zelensky had some conditions that needed to be met once those were met, they did and then uh, confirmed that the trip was going to happen. That happened on Sunday. Now, the Biden administration, senior administration officials aren't saying how Zelensky is flying here, if he's coming on a U.S. military aircraft or not. But we're learning this morning some new details from Polish TV, because they captured Zelensky coming into Poland over the Ukraine border on a Polish, uh, on a train. And that is traditionally how U.S. uh, leaders, how leaders around the world have gotten in and out of Ukraine on that train train that comes in and out of the country, and then, of course, on a flight out of the — out of Poland. Now, the other thing that's noteworthy is that he was with the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bridget Brink. And notably today, of course, Ukraine is going to be a focus. But we should note that the U.S. Senate is going to be voting on Lynn Tracy. Now, she is going to be the first female ambassador to Russia, and she's going to be replacing John Sullivan, who was there for a number of years. Her nomination went to the Senate in September. They're going to be voting on on her today, and it's just significant because this is a day all about the United States standing with Ukraine, but of course it is uh, noteworthy that the Senate is also going to be sending a new ambassador to Russia.
2: All right, and the world will be watching. Thank you very much, Kylie Epwood.
3: For more perspective on this, let's bring in former European Affairs Director at the National Security Council, retired Lieutenant Colonel Alex Venman, and former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Bill Taylor, who is currently the Vice President of the U.S. Institute of Peace Office of Strategic Stability. Thank you both for being here. You're two experts in this area, so we're so glad to have you this morning. And Ambassador Taylor, I'd like to start with you on just how critical this visit is and what you're going to be watching for as President Zelensky makes such a historic trip to the United States, his first time out of Ukraine since Russia invaded his country. Mm
19: Caden, you're exactly right. A great visit, a great opportunity. Um, he will certainly, President Zelensky will certainly thank the American people. Uh, he will thank President Biden. He will thank the Congress uh, for all the support. And it has been major. It has been significant. It has been overwhelming. It has been huge, the support that we've provided. And the Ukrainians really appreciate it. And they're going, President Zelensky is going to reflect all the Ukrainian views that appreciate all the support they've gotten. and. They need it to continue. And they need it, frankly, to expand. And that looks like it's coming.
2: Uh, Ambassador, just one more uh, for you before we get to uh, Lieutenant Vinman. Do you remember back in April when this, um, almost at the beginning of the war, two months in, nearly two months in, and you had Boris Johnson walking around Kiev, visiting uh, Zelensky in Kiev. That was in country. And now you have this visit. People will compare uh, these two visits. But the big difference is that one was on Ukrainian soil and now this is on U.S. soil. That is, that is a very big difference.
19: It's a big difference and it shows though, uh, it, it shows though, Don, that uh, President Zelensky has identified the United States as his major supporter, as the leader of the coalition, the leader of this broad assembly of nations that are supporting uh, Ukraine um, and opposing the Russian invasion, the unjustified Russian invasion. Um, and so that just is a strong signal um, of the cooperation and the importance of the alliance uh, between the United States and Ukraine.
3: And Colonel Veman, I you know this Patriot missile system that the U.S. is going to be sending to Ukraine. We heard from U.S. officials last night that say, you know, it's going to take a while. They're going to have to train in a third country, to actually a third-party country, to actually get them trained on how to use this. And that is a huge focus. It's one of those powerful weapons in the u.s. arsenal. But do you expect President Zelensky to also ask for more given you know this is not signaling that this war is coming to an end anytime soon?
20: Yeah, so to me the the, the delivery or the announcement of the Patriot missile system is important, but it's frankly less important than, uh, a signal that the U.S. government is prepared to provide other advanced capabilities and that the U.S. is going to start training Ukraine on how to operate everything from aircraft, um, older U.S. aircraft like F-16s, F-15s, that uh, tanks are in the mix, starting to train forces to, to pull those tanks. Because these are all systems that are complex, require a lot of training, not just for the operators, but for the maintainers. The folks that are going to be sure that these systems are... Uh, going to be in working order. One of the biggest challenges that the Ukrainians face at the moment is that they an enormous amount of equipment, and over the course of ten months, a lot of it has started to break down. So, a, a broader kind of more strategic relationship and a more strategic view on uh, sustaining this war for the next six to nine months is going to be absolutely critical. And I think that's exactly why uh, President Zelensky is making this trip now. He's in. A, it's halftime. He's run up the score real high. The end game is, is in uh, this spring and summer. Uh, and he's going to push through until he uh, liberates the entirety of his country. And he's looking for the U.S., his strategic partner, his strategic ally, to uh, wade in in the same way with the same kind of commitment.
2: So then what is what is his message? Then we know he's going to speak to Congress and we know that there are Republicans who are who have been signaling, you know, Possibly pulling back on support, especially financial uh, support for Ukraine, he's expected to address Congress at a time where there's an additional 45 billion dollars in Ukraine aid on the table. So, what message, Lieutenant, does he need to? Does Zelensky need to really hammer home here?
20: Sure. So, I think what he messages is that you know it is halftime done, and you don't walk away from a game when you run up the score and cede uh, the field to the enemy without opposition oh, yeah. so he's going to say that the, the ukrainian uh, forces are in a position to liberate territory uh this is going to be a brutal winter for the russians not simply because the ukrainians are, are outgunning them even in places that are, are challenging like bakhmut the most difficult battlefield but the winter is going to to uh besiege the russian forces that are not prepared to operate under those conditions and what we need to do what he's going to say is that um we need to help arm the Ukrainians so that they're in a position to liberate territory sooner rather than later so that Russia doesn't start to cast about for, like, fringe uh, approaches to try to see if the, if it could somehow, you know, do a Hail Mary and win this war. Yeah. The Hail Mary in the case of Russia could be disastrous. It could be it's a recipe for spillover. So he's going to make the case that the, this war could be and uh, could end sooner rather than later. And with U.S. support, that could happen before there is are, there are some sort of broader catastrophe that, that spills out of this massive war that's been going on for 10
2: months. Lieutenant and I think Colonel, he's going
20: to be quite effective
2: thus far. Lieutenant Colonel and Ambassador Taylor, thank you both very much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Don. Thank you.
3: All right. Now to the Midwest, where a powerful and potentially dangerous storm is threatening millions of Americans and also their travel plans ahead of the holidays. A brewing bomb cyclone, as it's known, has about 70 million people under these winter weather alerts. The brutal cold temperatures have local officials preparing for snowy and icy conditions and wind chills that could dip well below zero. More than 80% of the population in every state in the lower 48 is going to see temperatures dip below freezing in the next seven days. My home state, Alabama, is seeing wind chill alerts, and in the upper Midwest, conditions could be life-threatening. The height of the storm is expected to hit on Friday, one of the busiest travel days ahead of Christmas, as more than 100 million Americans are expected to travel for the holidays. Some cities are going to have their coldest Christmas in years. Atlanta is going to get just a high of 32 degrees, tying its second coldest Christmas on record. New York expecting a high of 27 degrees, its coldest in 22 years.
2: For more, we want to bring in now seen into Omar Jimenez live for us from Chicago's O'Hare Airport, where he is warm and snugly. That's because he's inside. Omar, the <laughs> impact of this storm is expected to hit cities nationwide. How are they dealing with it? How are airports dealing with this and preparing for this weather? <laughs>
0: Well, the one good thing ahead of the forecast is airports are trying to prepare, like here in Chicago, lots of places across the Midwest that typically deal with snow and ice this time of year are trying to prepare their de-icing materials here, over 400,000 gallons, trying to clear those runways and taxiways to make sure there are no issues there, and when you expand across the region, there are similar efforts. Where we're really going to have to look are in places like Alabama, Atlanta, of course, the world's busiest airport there, planes come in and out which has the potential to disrupt so much so a lot of the travelers we're seeing today are people trying to get ahead of those conditions like uh someone we spoke to a little bit earlier i think my dad just saw in the news that there's gonna be a huge blizzard thursday and uh my brother only has a few days off while he's uh in while we visit him so we didn't want our flight to get delayed and miss out on some of that time so we thought we'd just move it up uh, two days just to avoid it altogether and, of course, the cold is one thing, but it'll be part of a lot of winter-like conditions here in the Midwest, A particular, blizzard-like conditions expected starting tomorrow night through Friday night. And it's that combination of all things that will affect, sure, some flights, but also people who will
2: be getting out on the roads as they
0: run into potentially some whiteout conditions.
2: Yeah, it can be very dangerous. Thank you very much. Omar Jimenez at Chicago's O'Hare. A controversial pandemic border policy is still law for now, but that could change any day. We're going to ask the Republican governor what should be done about a potential surge of migrants.
3: Also, questions remain about the resume of the incoming Republican congressman that we talked about yesterday. How some members of his own party say that he does need to address it. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
2: So, Title 42 is the Trump era border policy that allows officials to quickly expel migrants from the U.S. It remains in effect for now, at least. The Biden administration told the Supreme Court yesterday that the justices should reject an emergency bid by a group of 19 Republican-controlled states to keep the controversial policy in effect while legal challenges play out. Let's discuss now Republican Governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson. Good morning to you. Listen, Arkansas is not one of the states that's suing, but you're a Republican governor, and so I want to know how you feel. I'm so glad that you could join us this morning from Little Rock, as we see there. So the, the, President Biden wants to end Title 42. His administration has a plan to increase resources at the border, increase processing efficiency, impose consequences for unlawful entry, and they want to target smugglers. Do you think that's enough, Governor?
21: Well, I mean, first of all, that should have been done six months or a year ago. Uh, We're waiting until now to surge our resources there and to put uh, the additional uh, emphasis on the border security. There's three things that really are important right now. First of all, Title 42, Uh, needs to be extended. Now, the president has given mixed signals on this, most recently saying let's, even though we want to end it, let's uh, extend it beyond Christmas. Well, this is a humanitarian crisis uh, at the border. It puts uh, the migrants in a terrible position. They've come here expecting the president to end Title 42. It needs to be extended at least until April. And the reason for that is that's when the president has indicated we're extending the public health emergency for Medicaid enrollees that the states cannot take action to remove somebody who's not qualified. So acknowledge that public health emergency ought to be in place for one purpose. Let's continue it at least through April. In the meantime, go to Congress with a border security bill. The Republicans. We'll have new leadership in place. Let's have a tight border security bill that will put the resources there for the processing that can reform our asylum laws. The third thing that needs to be done is to have an engagement with Mexico to a greater extent to make sure they're doing more. When it t- comes to the cartels, when it comes to the resources with the handling of migrants, we need to be able to engage them to a greater extent to accomplish those objectives and to reduce the influence of the cartel. Those are the steps that need to be taken.
2: Okay, so listen, apparently you, you think this temporary thing is just a Band-Aid, right? That's what you're saying. You, you mentioned the three things. I think the, one of the most important—obviously, the buck stops with the administration—but one of the most important things, you said a border security bill to Congress, which means there's going to have to be bipartisan action on that. Do you think there is the appetite in Washington right now, especially considering January 3rd, it's all going to change over and Republicans will be in control of Congress? Do you think there is the appetite for some sort of border security bill and for some bipartisanship here? Uh,
21: I do believe so. Whenever you look at uh, the Democrat mayors of major cities calling out for relief and help, uh, whenever you look at uh, uh, every state uh, governor uh, is impacted by this, I think there is room for bipartisanship. And what we've done before is we try to have a comprehensive immigration reform bill uh, that can't get the support that's needed. And so let's have simply a border security bill accomplishing some of the things that uh, the president's trying to do, even though it's too late. Uh, let's let's increase the resources for the processing of asylum claims so it can be done timely. Let's have more immigration judges uh, there so that uh, they're not uh, caught and then released into our society, and we don't uh, are not able to. Uh, Uh, whenever their asylum claim is denied, we can't find them at that point. Uh, And so that has to be done. So I think there can be bipartisan support for a border security bill. We also have to have a replacement for Title 42. It can't last forever. Mm -hmm. And so let's have a replacement that can accomplish some of the same objectives and have a consistent message that our border is not open, that it's going to be difficult And we're going to look at those asylum claims very carefully and not just release
2: you into the United States. I'm glad you uh, mentioned that, uh, you know, that it shouldn't be temporary. You answered my next question. So now I can move on. And I'm glad we can because this is very important. Listen, I know that you're possibly considering a run for the White House. So it goes just beyond border security. I want to ask you about what's happening in Washington today. Ukraine's President Zelensky is set to arrive at the White House soon. Support for Ukraine, um, Ukrainian aid among Republicans, it really has wavered. Do you believe the U.S. needs to keep up aid for as long as it takes? What do you think? And there are Republicans who are in Washington now saying, I'm not so sure, and they appear to be backing off at least as much financial support for Ukraine.
21: Well, the answer is we absolutely need to continue our support for Ukraine. I'm so delighted that President Zelensky is going to be there to address Congress. I look forward to the nation hearing that message. And uh, they're standing for their sovereign territory, for their freedom, and they're fighting for a free Europe. And so the United States support has been critical in this. I think President Zelensky's gonna recognize that today. But our support needs to continue. And uh, he's winning. They've showed incredible courage in this, but it's a long struggle. And we need to continue that support and give them the support they need. When I look at the Republican side, I think there is still broad support. But, you know, it's fair to make sure that the money is spent appropriately and that uh, we have the right checks and balances. But let's stand strong with Ukraine. Uh, They're really fighting a battle for all of us in terms of freedom and sovereignty.
2: Yeah, I snuck in the uh, considering a run for White House there, I'm sure that that did not pass you. So uh, where are you on that decision?
21: (laughs) Well, you know, uh, we only have one candidate in the race right now on the Republican side, uh, President Trump. I don't think there's been a great deterrence for others looking at it. I know the number of them are looking at it, including myself. What America needs to understand is there's going to be options on the Republican side. Uh, We'll be making a decision the first quarter of
2: next year. So stay tuned. You're saying there's a chance. Thank you, Governor Hayes Hutchinson. We appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be with you. So after a lengthy legal—well, he's saying there's a chance, maybe. In the first quarter. Yeah. such, your, leaning, such calendar. towards it yet. There you see the former president uh, up there. So um, how much resistance is Trump getting to these release of his tax returns? Um, some may be public. He's not happy about it. Obviously, we're going to speak to a member of the House committee that is releasing those records.
3: Plus, an incoming New York congressman now under serious scrutiny as he's been accused of stretching the truth quite a bit on his resume. But could he face legal trouble?
2: That is...
22: Opposition, Democrats on the Ways and Means Committee have uh, unleashed a dangerous new political weapon uh, that overturns decades of privacy
6: protections for average taxpayers.
19: I want to say this, after a
23: long uh, process, that this was not about being punitive, it was not about being malicious.
3: All right, welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up in the show, a member of Democratic-led House and Ways and Means Committee, which is talking about those decisions on Trump's taxes, will join us live after that decision. Plus, after more than a month of no suspect, no motive, and no answers in the murder of four Idaho college students, could the investigation move in a new direction? And protesters who attempted to disrupt a drag queen story hour are taking their anger to a New York council member's door. We'll show you those images.
2: So this morning, a top Republican in Nassau County, New York, is calling for incoming Republican Congressman George Santos to address the discrepancies in his resume. An investigative report by The New York Times and CNN's review of Santos' biography found that key parts were either contradicted or not supported by the evidence. Democrats in the state are now calling for him to resign. In a statement to CNN, the Nassau County Republican Committee chairman said that the issues raised by the reports are serious, but Santos, quote, deserves an opportunity to address the claims. Santos' biography says that he received degrees from NYU and Baruch College and worked at, a city, at Citigroup and at Goldman Sachs. Well, spokespeople for both schools told CNN that there were no records of anyone with his name attending the institutions. Citigroup and Goldman Sachs also told CNN that they had no record of his employment. So joining us now to discuss CNN legal analyst and criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson and CNN's um, anchor and correspondent Adi Cornish. This is a you-know-what show wrapped in a conundrum, wrapped in everything. Okay. Joey, good morning to both of you. You're the legal expert here. So we have been saying that this is, you know, discrepancies in his resume, but there's also the law. And there is this Ethics in Government Act failure to file or filing false disclosure statements, there are consequences for it. Are we at that point yet? So we'll see.
24: All right, so there's a couple of issues. Obviously, there's the political issue, and I think certainly there's political trouble here with respect to lying to voters and obtaining your position under false pretenses, but then we get into the legal realm. And when we get into the legal realm, we're about facts and we're about context and we're about specifically what you did. And so I think that there's two points to be made here. Number one, in terms of the law, People lie, you know, every day, unfortunately. What is the nature of that? Did you lie on a federal form? Did you otherwise indicate when you were signing a form that you were swearing under penalty of perjury? All of that has to be investigated. The next step, you talk about a congressional inquiry, an ethics inquiry. They will look, they will examine, and they will make a determination as to the specific lies that he told and what references he made on forms. If that happens, Don, the answer is there is trouble here big time. If that didn't happen, then he has to explain to voters why he made up these things concerning his education concerning his employment, concerning his philanthropy, concerning his employees who died at the Pulse nightclub. Uh, it's it
2: could be a much bigger story. Moving Just forward. real quickly, but don't candidates have to sign these forms and say that they,
24: they, they certainly don't. do. Okay. Uh, you know, that has to be produced, though. Okay. Did he sign the form? Uh, you know, show me the form, evaluate where he signed, when he signed, you know, the nature of how he signed. Then we're talking about the legal realm, trouble and criminality.
3: Yeah, like any campaign finance violations, Correct. maybe. Yes. What about the political aspect, though? Voters don't like being lied to. They don't like hypocrisy, <laughs> um, at least last time I checked, I think. When it comes to Capitol Hill, though, you know, I saw some Democrats saying that Kevin McCarthy should refuse to seat him in that Republican majority that he's, he's supposed to enter in just a matter of weeks. But does that seem like something realistic? Um, they
25: can say that. That doesn't really matter to Kevin McCarthy or the GOP caucus. I do want to come back to something you said, though, about campaign finance. You know, it's not just about padding the resume. This is a person who reported a net worth of less than like $50,000 one year. And two years later, he was claiming $11 million. Where did that money come from? Uh, what is the source of it? Uh, how did he get it? Who is he leveraged to? These are actually the more serious questions that um, I think people should care about in a way. It's the same reason why people are interested in uh, Donald Trump's taxes. It's not just this idea of like, show us something because we we should see it. It's who are you leveraged to? Who can have um, any kind of influence over you and your policymaking? It is a very basic follow the money story. And I I just want to give a shout out to the local Long Island paper columnist that actually paid attention to this prior to the during election the and yeah. during the campaign. And it really underscores the need for like local journalism and under- mm-hmm. it underscores the need for people who can investigate these things before the New York Times thinks it's going to do a puff piece on a freshman and ends up finding out his entire resume is full of thin air.
2: But in this environment that we're in with deny, 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 or this is, you know, they're smearing me because the response, his attorney says the Times is attempting to smear the congressman-elect with defamatory allegations. So, and they're saying, well, he deserves the opportunity To respond to these claims, but he's not directly responding to them. The the response is, this is a smear campaign. Of course the New York Times is out to get me, but not saying this is untrue, this is untrue, here's my diploma, this is, you know... Right,
25: and I think it's easy as journalists for us to get caught up in the tactics. So the tactic that we're messing with right now is the end of shame. Mm -hmm. Let me brazen this out. Let me not answer any of the issues directly. Let me just basically use the distrust that the public has in the media, which we know from many Gallup polls, against it. And maybe I just ride it out, right? We're seeing politicians across the spectrum do that. And it is the result of our own struggles as an industry the last couple of years. Um, And it's very easy to spend all our time being like, what do you mean? Did I defeat? But, but, But instead of where is the information? <laughs> Where is the it's evidence here? called deflection. Here? Right? Yeah, exactly. You deflect.
24: And it could be, look, the bottom line is that he will have to answer to specific
2: instances if those forms do come out, right? Before you finish, sure. it, this is his Democratic um, opponent who lost was on yesterday and responded to this. I want to hear what you have to say, but I think it's important to hear from him and then we'll hear Absolutely. what to say. Let's play it. This man is a fraudster. He's the allegations of fraud and corruption are well documented in the Times story. And there has to be a House Ethics Committee investigation into him. And there has to also be a Department of Justice investigation. First, he either has to resign because of the pressure of the investigations and the exposures of the corruption and fraud that clearly is defined him as George Scamptos in the media. Or it's or he ha, or for that matter, Congress removes him. There won't be a special election to either step is taken.
24: But. Here's the point. When you have campaigns, you have opposition research, right? And your opponent should be doing due diligence on you such that they can make a determination and make the case to the voters that you're lying, that you're not being truthful with the voters, that you're exaggerating, that you're fabricating. And so to the extent that you don't do that, to come back now and say, hey, what happened here, what happened here is that you had an obligation as an opponent to expose this and it wasn't exposed until now. But stand by, Don, because certainly I think in terms of the investigation, if those forms start coming out and those signatures start being unearthed where he signed things that are false, uh, you're looking at federal crimes potentially.
3: Well, and you can basically guarantee now every political opponent is going to be making sure that so-and-so went to Baruch College and has an right. IRS tax-exempt yes. nonprofit.
2: Do you have a podcast this week?
25: We do. This week is actually we're talking about the objectivity wars in journalism. We're talking about this issue of the value of local news and talking about the ways the media has struggled over the last couple of years with the last two administrations. Now, Perfect topic for this. An example. It is. It is. <laughs> we're <laughs> it dealing
3: is.
2: with right now. Yeah. Good timing. Thank you very much,
3: Audie Cornish, Joy Jackson. Thank you both. Thank you. The newest episode that she was just talking about there, with that focus on journalism, the assignment with Audie Cornish will be available on Thursday wherever you get your podcast. And ahead, we're going to take you live to the U.S.-Mexico border, where we have been all week talking about what's happening there as the Biden administration is asking the Supreme Court what to do about Title 42.
2: Plus, what the Capitol Police Chief is now saying about the attack on Speaker Pelosi's husband.
12: I'm told by a house aide that for Speaker Pelosi, there hadn't been a security assessment at her residence in San Francisco since 2018. Is that true?
2: More CNN this morning to come after the break. This has never been about one person. This has been about the office of the presidency and separate from every one of us that files our taxes and may go through an examination under the mandatory review um, procedures of the IRS
3: We are just days away from seeing former President Trump's taxes finally. After years of battling legal battles in court, the House Ways and Means Committee, which is led by Democrats, we should note, voted to release six years of his taxes to the public. Those documents are expected to be redacted and released within a matter of days, giving us new and detailed insights into his financial standings, including the revelation that the former president paid zero dollars in federal taxes during his final year in office. In two separate reports, committee members revealed that the IRS failed to follow its own policy mandating annual audits of sitting presidents because they did not audit Trump during his first two years in office. So joining us now to talk about this is the Democratic delegate and member of the Ways and Means Committee, Stacey Plaskett. Thank you for joining us. I know you spent four hours behind closed doors with your committee yesterday. What did you see?
26: Well, first, uh, thank you for having me and happy holidays to you and to all of your viewers. Uh, You know, I first let me say that I think that Chairman Neal conducted a very civil uh, discourse between both sides in the discussions and the staff was absolutely amazing in the amount of detail and the care at which they went about this process. Remember, we've been trying to do this for four years uh, and what Chairman Neal wanted to do was to see if the mandatory audit, the mandatory presidential audit, which has been in place since 1977, was working. And we needed it to work because as you know, uh, President Trump was the first president who had not released his taxes in many years. And so there was no way for us or the American people to be able to ascertain whether or not he had uh, conflicts of interest, whether he was utilizing funds and making decisions as the chief executive, as the commander in chief uh, that had pecuniary and financial benefits for himself. The only way that that could be done was through the mandatory audit process. And what we found was that it didn't take place. They did not even begin an audit. None of the audits have been complete, but only began it when chairman meal sent them a letter asking about it.
3: Yeah, and they have this responsibility to audit his taxes and they weren't auditing them. So do you are you satisfied with the IRS's explanation so far for why that wasn't
26: happening? No, we are not. We're not satisfied at all with that. Uh, but let's also recall that for uh, some time now, the Republicans, when they were in power 2014 and, else, and, and moving forward, were taking money away from the IRS. And we know that the IRS has not been able to do audits, particularly on very complex uh, individuals' taxes. And we recognize that regular Americans are much more likely to be audited than the very rich, the very wealthy who have more complex taxes and need special assistance, special agents who are able to audit those taxes.
3: So the IRS is basically saying it's more of a manpower issue, which is why they were delayed in doing that. My understanding is they're still not done conducting that audit. Is that correct?
26: That's correct. None of the president's Uh, audits during his time in office have been completed. I know
3: your committee and Chairman Neal really wants to codify into law that this has to happen. But are you concerned, given Republicans are about to take over the majority of the House in just a matter of days, really, the Democrats have basically run out of time to get something like that
26: passed? Well, I know that the chairman has spoken with the Senate side about how important this is. But we have gotten signals from some of our Republican colleagues that this is important to them as well. The mandatory audit of presidents uh, alone is something that they may be interested in supporting also.
3: Delegate Stacey Plaskett, thank you for joining us this morning. We also hope your family has a good time uh, during the holidays.
26: Thank you. Same to yours.
3: All right, ahead, our coverage of President Zelensky's historic visit to Washington will continue. What could we hear from him and from President Biden? They're going to hold a joint press conference, and the White House's John Kirby will also join us in just moments.
2: And Dionne Warwick is a music icon, a legend, 56 worldwide hits, six Grammy Awards, and one extraordinary legacy. She brings her exclusive story to CNN, the new film Don't Make Me Over, which premieres New Year's Day.
1: Dionne Warwick, one of the great female singers of all time.
5: Dionne was the first African-American woman to win a Grammy in the pop category. Except the,
16: boy. the music I was singing was nothing like anything that any of them were singing. The legacy of my family, music, pure and simple, music. Dionne
2: Warwick, Don't Make Me Over, premieres New Year's Day at 9 on CNN. I need to tell you about this story. This morning, police have arrested two women for vandalizing New York City Councilmember Eric Botcher's apartment building. It happened just days after the women joined a protest to disrupt a drag story hour. Botcher attended at the New York Public Library. Look at this.
16: I would love like to be in drag and read the Bible to the children. Mm-hmm. How come you don't have
26: police officers reading to the kids? Okay. How come you don't have firefighters reading to the kids? So officials with
2: the library say there were no arrests during the story hour and the event went on as planned. Police say that the women left vulgar graffiti in Botcher's hallways and on his sidewalk. Botcher has been a vocal advocate for gay rights in New York. He tells CNN if the protesters think that these tactics are going to silence us, they are badly mistaken.
3: It's an important message because he said that's essentially what their goal is, is to intimidate and and to stop this.
2: Going to someone's home is just.
3: Over a nonprofit book hour thing. I know.
23: All
3: right. We'll have more on that to come. And CNN this morning is going to continue right now.
2: Good morning, everyone. It is a top of the hour. You don't see Poppy Harlow because she is off and we've got a lot to catch up on. We're going to start with the five things that CNN wants you to know about this morning. Uh, six years worth of former President Trump's taxes are set to be released. The Democratic-led House Ways and Means Committee says it will release Trump's tax returns within the next couple of days. The release ends a nearly four-year legal battle Democrats waged against the former president after they took control of the House in 2019.
3: Also, the Taliban has suspended university education for all female students in Afghanistan. This is just the latest in the brutal clampdown on the rights of Afghan women. Girls were barred from secondary schools back in March, as you recall. Women there can no longer work in most sectors, and they've been ordered to cover their faces in public.
2: Who wants to run Twitter? Not Elon Musk. Musk confirmed that he will step down as the company's CEO as soon as he finds, quote, someone foolish enough to take the job. Musk says that he would still run the software and server teams at the site.
3: Also this morning, much of the country preparing for a brutal Arctic blast. Winter alerts for snow and ice are in effect in more than 25 states and covering more than 90 million of us. The south could see life-threatening cold. The Midwest could see blizzard conditions. And the heaviest snow is expected on Thursday into Friday, which could affect what is expected to be two of the busiest travel days of this year.
2: There's a state of emergency this morning in California after a 6.4 magnitude earthquake hit the northern part of the state. Two people have died. Twelve people were hurt after the earthquake struck Humboldt County. More than 14,000 customers are without power this morning. County officials are still checking infrastructure damage to make sure all pipes and houses are structurally sound.
3: But this hour, we start with the surprise visit from Ukraine's President Zelensky, set to meet with President Biden in just a matter of hours and To address a joint session of Congress, earlier he was seen arriving in Poland before getting on a plane for Washington. U.S. officials say that an American military aircraft was involved in bringing him to the U.S. It is his first trip outside of Ukraine since Russia, Russia first invaded 10 months ago. It's a chance for him to rally support for a critical new package of military aid. CNN's MJ Leave is at the White House. CNN's Lauren Fox is on Capitol Hill. MJ, tell us more about what you're learning about, obviously what was a really sensitive trip and actually getting President Zelensky
4: to the United States. That's right. I mean, keep in mind that this is a visit that was kept tightly under wraps until the very last minute. And what we learned from a senior administration official overnight is that the planning has been underway for about the last 10 days or so that a potential visit was first raised on a phone call between President Biden and President Zelensky on December 11th. And once President Zelensky accepted the invitation, then the the work really started to make sure that certain security parameters were met. You can uh, imagine how high those security risks are, given that he is, of course, a wartime president. And my colleague Kevin Liptak and I can now report this morning that a U.S. military aircraft was involved in bringing President Zelensky to Washington and that the U.S. was very closely involved uh, just in general in bringing him here and will be involved in getting him out of the U.S. Uh, and he is not going to be staying long, Caitlin. He is going to be here at the White House in the afternoon. And then in the evening, of course, he heads over to Capitol Hill to address members of Congress. And right after, we are told he is going to be leaving the country. Uh, And of course, I should mention uh, this new Ukraine aid package that the president is going to be unveiling that amounts to some $1.8 billion. Uh, This includes that important Patriot surface-to-air missile system. This is one of the most sophisticated long-range missiles uh, and something that Ukrainians have been asking for for a very long time. So, uh, Caitlin, just setting up the day for a very, very important day here at the White House. Thank you, MJ. And and Lauren, I know House Speaker Pelosi,
3: there weren't a lot of lawmakers in town. She actually had to call them back uh, to come and uh, be there for Zelensky to address Congress later today. What else are you learning about what that will actually look like when he's on Capitol Hill?
7: Yeah, Caitlin, I mean, look, the House Speaker looked forward to this moment. She alerted members yesterday that this was coming. But one thing to keep in mind is, yeah, lawmakers are not really up here on Capitol Hill. They're going to have to vote on that must pass spending package. But a lot of lawmakers could have voted remotely. She wants to make sure that people are in the chamber for this historic moment. She officially invited Zelensky last night in a formal letter, inviting him to address a joint meeting of Congress. And I just want to read you part of that. She said, The fight for Ukraine is the fight for democracy itself. We look forward to hearing your inspiring message of unity, resilience, and determination. And we should note that this comes at a critical moment in the House of Representatives because they are slated to vote on that huge spending package, which includes nearly $45 billion in assistance for Ukraine. Of course, a lot of Republicans who are going to be in the chamber are being asked to vote against that by their leadership. So it just shows you, is anything that Zelensky says tonight going to change the minds of some of those Republicans in the audience about that vote? All right, Lauren Fox, MJ Lee, thank you both.
2: we will get the Patriot missile system he has been wanting. It's part of the package President Biden is expected to announce today. Straight now to Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon. Oren, good morning to you. How will this help Ukraine defend itself from Russian missiles?
27: Good morning, Don. Patriot missiles are one of the most advanced U.S. aerial defense systems, and crucially, they are a long-range defense system, so they'll sit almost like an extended-range dome on top of the systems the U.S. already has provided. Remember when the U.S. provided U.S.-manufactured NASAMs? Those are medium-range air defense systems that have proven very effective in taking out some of the Russian barrages we've seen targeting civilian and energy infrastructure. There's also the shorter-range components of that, like stingers and other manpads that the US and others have provided, but the Patriots are a much longer range system that will enhance Ukraine's ability at air defense. It is meant to disrupt these constant Russian barrages we've seen, targeting civilian infrastructure, targeting military targets. This will help Ukraine defend its own territory, but it comes of course with complications. These are complex systems that will take Ukraine some time to learn how to operate these, how to maintain them, how to sustain them. And that's part of the challenge here. It takes about 20 weeks to learn how a team of dozens operates a Patriot missile system. They'll have to learn that as quickly as possible. Don, Ukraine has shown an ability for their soldiers to learn complex U.S. systems quickly. This is one more system, a crucial system they'll have to learn as quickly as possible. Oren
2: Lieberman joining us from the Pentagon this morning. Thank you, Oren.
3: And joining us now is National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications at the White House, John Kirby. Good morning, John. Thanks for joining us. Tell me about why it's important for President Zelensky to visit Washington, visit the White House now.
8: There's a lot uh, going on in the war in Ukraine, obviously, and, and we are in a, uh, a new phase, if you will. This winter's coming. Uh, Mr. Putin has stepped up his attacks on civilian infrastructure, civilian targets. Air defense capabilities are now the most important capability that Ukraine needs and must have to help defend itself. So the president really believed that uh, as we approach winter, as we enter clearly and have been in a sort of a new phase in this war, uh, Mr. Putin's aggression, that this was uh, a good time for the two leaders to sit down face to face and talk about not only what the United States is doing now and will continue to do going forward, uh, but how we eventually try to work towards what President Zelensky has called uh, a just peace. So you do think that
3: the two leaders today will be discussing what the end of
8: this could look like? I have no doubt that they're going to talk about uh, President Zelensky's notion of a just peace and what that looks like, what are the components of that, and how do we help Ukraine get to that point. But look, uh, Caitlin, no question about it. Mr. Putin is obviously not interested in diplomacy right now. Quite the contrary. He's interested in killing more Ukrainian civilians and knocking out the lights and knocking out the heat as winter approaches. So we have to make sure that we also stay focused on the security assistance that uh, Ukraine's gonna need going forward.
3: And what kind of risk assessment did the United States conduct to get Zelensky to Washington? And are you confident that you can get him safely back to Ukraine?
8: Obviously, I'm not going to talk too much about uh, force protection requirements to get uh, President Zelensky here. Uh, He obviously uh, understands the the risks he's taken when he travels inside his country and certainly uh, as he travels outside, but we were working in lockstep with him and his staff to make sure that he can make this trip safely, both coming to the United States and going back and we will continue to support uh, his travel requirements as best we can.
3: Okay. And does this mean that President Biden himself will be returning and visiting to, to Ukraine anytime soon?
8: I don't have any travel for President Biden to announce. Uh, We're focused today on this visit, face-to-face meeting with President Zelensky, and again, reaffirming uh, our our firm commitment to Ukraine's self-defense.
3: I know one thing you'll be discussing today are those Patriot missile defense systems, of course, some of the most powerful in the U.S. arsenal. When do you expect that they will be in Ukraine and be operational?
8: Well, again, I don't want to get ahead of the president or announcement. He's going to amount announcements that uh, he's going to make, uh, Caitlin. Uh, the Patriot system, uh, separate and distinct from that conversation, it is a self defense uh, mechanism. It's about air defense. It's a defensive uh, system. It is fairly sophisticated and advanced. Uh, it takes uh, a long time for our troops to get trained on how to operate them. Uh, so we'll, we'll have to factor all that in going forward.
3: But in order to send those to Ukraine, have you received assurances from the Ukrainians that they won't use them for targets inside of Russia?
8: Well, again, I'm not going to get ahead of decisions and announcements here uh, that the president's going to talk about later uh, today. What I would tell you writ writ, writ large is that everything that we have sent to Ukraine has really been designed to help them defend themselves. Defensive systems so that they can either gain back their territory or or defend the territory that they have, in fact, uh, re-liberated from from Russia. And how they use those systems on the field, where, when, under what circumstances, that's really up for the Ukrainians to decide. We give them the best information, the best training we can. We certainly help them with uh, actionable intelligence, uh, but how they use these systems, that's really up to them. Since we're in, what you're saying is a new phase of this war.
3: Do you expect that President Zelensky will say to President Biden today that he needs more than just the Patriot missile defense systems?
8: I'll let President Zelensky talk for himself and uh, for what he wants to bring to the discussion today. Certainly, the United States stands ready to continue to have discussions with the Ukrainians going forward uh, about self-defense needs and about capabilities uh, that they'll require going forward. You know, the capabilities that we've been providing since the beginning of the war have evolved over time. You know, when it first started, we were all talking about the Javelin anti-tank missile. Now we're talking about advanced air defense because the war has changed. And the ways in which Ukrainians are being attacked by the Russians have changed. Air defense is obviously uh, of a prime importance right now. We'll see where this goes going forward. The president has said, we're going to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. And he meant every word of that.
3: Will he announce any new sanctions today?
8: Not going to get ahead again of the president's uh, discussion with President Zelensky. Uh, There will be some announcements that the president will make, but uh, again, I'll, I'll, I'll let him do that.
3: All right, John Kirby, we'll stay tuned for those. Thank you for joining us this morning.
8: Thank you, appreciate it.
2: And this is supposed to be a surprise. And obviously the media got a hold of it last night. And the word started coming out because obviously with the security concerns and everything that they need to get in place for this type of a visit, that was.
3: You okay. can't keep a secret in Washington. Yeah. I, I talked I called a lawmaker last night after we saw this was going to happen. And that's what they were like when you tell lawmakers and they say that, you know, there's a special session on democracy, which is what Pelosi said. I think everyone, everyone. drew the conclusion. Yeah.
2: What is going on? What's happening? All right. So this morning, a CNN exclusive, U.S. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger is speaking out for the first time since Paul Pelosi was attacked. He reveals that they uh, they never reassessed security after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi returned to leadership. So straight to CNN's Pamela Brown. She joins us now with this exclusive interview. Pamela, good morning to you. What does Manger say um, Capitol Police will do differently going forward?
12: Well, I think it's fair to say a lot, right? Chief Manger, who came onto the job last year, said lessons have been learned since the Paul Pelosi attack in late October, including doing more frequent security assessments on the homes of new leadership, unlike what was done for Speaker Pelosi in the four years before the attack. I'm told by House aide that For Speaker Pelosi, there hadn't been a security assessment at her residence in San Francisco since 2018. Is that true?
28: Uh, Yes. Um, And uh, each, I think, when, um, as each person assumes a leadership position, um, it's important for us to do another assessment to make sure that we've got the latest information and, and we've, you know, if we've got additional recommendations, if we've got additional technology. That we can employ to keep um, a member safer, we need to. We need to make sure that that gets done.
12: So, after she became speaker, was there a security assessment done?
28: The last one that was done was uh, that that I'm aware of was in eighteen. You now, we we've since have done another one. Um, since the attack recently yes Um, but uh i think the 2018 was the last one that was done
12: and so will you now as a lesson learned do more frequent security assessments of leadership yes that
28: that's how much
12: more frequently well
28: i think any time that there's a change in in their status if someone assumes a leadership position we'll make sure that we That we do uh, an updated assessment for them, and um, if you know, and and one of the things that we've tried to do to reach out to all the members is to make sure that they're aware that these assessments are available to them. Um, Most, some, or or a lot of members take advantage of it. Some, some don't. But we're trying to you know remind everybody, you know, if you want uh, a, a security assessment of your home, we will in fact come out and do it.
12: What do you say to the lawmakers on both sides of the aisle who have come out since the Paul Pelosi attack and have questioned the vigilance of Capitol Police or have questioned the competence of Capitol Police? What do you say to them?
28: So I think um, uh, I want to I want to try and manage their expectations. Um, you know, the uh, uh, and this is where Um, When I spoke earlier about the way we, um, our security posture with, you know, on the legislative branch, how it was different than what's done in the executive branch and and what is done in the judicial branch for the the Supreme Court justices and and judges around the country. And so I think that we've got to make sure that um, they understand what our capabilities are. Um, what we 're staffed to do, and that if their expectations are different than what we can, uh, than, than what we can meet, then we 've got to find a way to meet their expectations and so um, this is one of the reasons that we, that I, I'm trying to seek additional resources in the budget so that we can meet in fact meet their expectations about um, how we protect uh, the members, how we protect their staff, their families, their homes, that sort of thing.
12: And on that note, the Senate spending bill includes $132 million for Capitol Police for a total of $735 million. But bottom line here, Caitlin and Don, is that Chief Manger said there has never been a more dangerous time to be an elected official in America. The threats against them are more serious. They are increasing. Uh, Speaker Pelosi alone, in, in I believe it was 2021, had more than 6 percent of the threats overseen by Capitol Police. But Chief Manger said... His agency is doing everything it can to protect the lawmakers and what he calls a no-fail mission. Back to you.
3: Yeah, those concerns are very clear and evident. Pamela Brown, thanks so much for that interview.
12: Yep. All right, no
3: suspect, no motive. More than a month after those four Idaho college students were murdered, now the family is wondering and asking out loud if the police are even capable of solving this crime.
29: I'm David Culver on the Mexico side of the U.S.-Mexico border. Over there, you can see a long line of migrants who have been waiting now for several weeks to get into the U.S., and in just the past few hours, a big change that is giving some renewed hope. We'll explain it to you coming up.
2: More CNN this morning to come after the break. So This morning, Homeland Security confirming its agents have moved more than 9,000 migrants from El Paso, Texas in the last week. Meantime, the Biden administration is asking the Supreme Court to keep Title 42 in place until Tuesday. Well, right now, that policy is on a temporary hold. Let's get to the border now. CNN is live there. David Culver, as a matter of fact, in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. Good morning to you. What are you hearing from migrants? there? Look at the line behind
29: you, by the way. Yeah, you see that, Don, a big change in just the past few hours, too, because a lot of these migrants were where we were about 24 hours ago when we were live with you and we showed the barricade situation going into place at that one very popular crossing into El Paso, Texas. Well, it seems to be that where that current setup is, about a mile from where we are right now, that is the place where migrants are no longer going. And and, and it seems that there is some differing, uh, if not conflicting, Uh, decisions being made from the different U.S. law enforcement agencies, because you have Texas State Police, Texas National Guard, and the U.S. Border Patrol. Now let me show you some video that was captured by one of our colleagues here just a short time ago. And you're going to see a rush of people, and those are the migrants who were near that barricaded area, coming towards the direction where we are now. And it seems that Border Patrol had redirected them to another gate to start being processed. Now that is where we are. We can come back out here live and show you this long line where you see about a dozen campfires being burned, people trying to keep warm and below freezing temperatures as they've crossed the Rio Grande, a lot of them wet, then shedding their clothes and then standing by to potentially be processed. Now we should point out, even if they're going to enter on this side here, which they have been little by little, about five to 10 people in groups being allowed in over a period of time. then. They're allowed to start the asylum process, but it does not guarantee, Don, that they're going to be allowed to enter and stay in the U.S. for a long period of time. They could still, under Title 42, be immediately expelled.
2: It's interesting because yesterday it it appeared like there were more members of the National Guard than actual migrants out there. But today that's certainly that looks like it's obviously flipped. What happened?
29: It is very interesting. And you see this tension almost between the different law enforcement agencies, even from a distance. And and perhaps that's factoring into all of this, Don, because you have from the U.S. Border Patrol side, those agents are, are much more engaging and really interacting with the migrants, whereas the Texas National Guard and the Texas State Police didn't interact with them beyond using a megaphone to tell them to go to the legal crossing. It seems like Border Patrol is trying to facilitate some of this processing so as to keep the buildup on what is still the U.S. side of the border and to have people camping out for several hours in these temperatures and conditions. It, it perhaps is that the Border Patrol is redirecting some of those migrants to a space where you don't have Texas National Guard and state troopers. And we're hearing they may not even have jurisdiction to this point. So this is where the Border Patrol is then saying, all right, well, we're going to take this." under our hands right now and start the processing at this hour just one quick question for you because they're playing this all by ear right
2: because this happened suddenly what happens if they right you know if if it isn't um lifted in the next week or so what happens
29: it, and that's that's the, been the big focus, right? They all thought it was gonna be today. A lot of these migrants have traveled for several months just to this point, thinking the 21st, especially those from Venezuela, had this idea in mind that it would be lifted. So if it's not gonna be lifted in the next few days, well, they're still hoping that they'll get processed, and that they will be allowed into the U.S. under their own claims of asylum. But you're right, there's still this uncertainty and confusion that a lot of them are feeling, not knowing if they'll actually be able to get through with Title 42 still in effect.
2: All right, David Culver on the border for us. Thank you very much on the Mexico side, as a matter of fact. I'm going to tell you that in just moments we're going to be joined by El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser.
3: Also this morning, an attorney for one of the victims' families in the University of Idaho murders is questioning whether or not the local police department in the small town of Moscow should be leading this investigation. It has been more than five weeks since four students were stabbed to death in their home, but police still have no answers, at least not publicly. CNN's Camilla Bernal joins us live from Los Angeles. What are we hearing from this family and their attorney about what they want to see happen differently?
30: Caitlin, good morning. Well, because it's been more than five weeks without a resolution, the attorney representing Kaylee Gonzalez's family believes that it is fair to look into the Moscow Police Department to ask whether or not they should be handling this investigation. He says that on the day-to-day, Moscow police is great, but is questioning whether they have the experience to handle a quadruple homicide. Look, before this case, Moscow had not recorded a murder since 2015, but despite all of this, the chief of police in Moscow, James Fry, responding and saying that he is in charge, that he is leading this investigation and that he believes his team is capable of moving forward and of solving this case, saying that combined, the team has more than 90 years of experience, also pointed to the help that they're getting from the state police and from the FBI. In fact, more FBI agents were added in recent days. And the experts that I talked to telling me, look behind the scenes, it is possible that those FBI agents and state police are leading uh, the strategy here. And what experts say is that this is not a cold case despite all of the time that has passed, Caitlin?
3: Yeah, those families want answers. Camilla Rodal, thank you so much. They you. Thank you. All right, Elon Musk says he's going to resign as Twitter's chief executive, but not right away. CNN's senior media reporter Oliver Darcy is here to discuss.
2: And embattled NBA owner Robert Sarver has agreed to sell the NBA's Phoenix Suns and the WNBA's Mercury. We're going to break down the big money deal with Bomani Jones next. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. Coming up, we have just learned that Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky will be addressing the U.S. Congress tonight. It's going to happen at 730. It's part of his whirlwind visit to Washington today that will include a meeting with President Biden. Uh, the Biden administration says that it does want the Supreme Court to end Title 42 border restrictions, but not just yet. The mayor of El Paso. Texas was going to join us next. Plus, it is going to get really, really cold this week. Could it be the coldest Christmas in recent history? I guess if I'm asking you the question, it could be.
3: (laughs) But first, we'll start with Elon Musk this morning. After two days of silence, the Twitter CEO does say he'll be leaving his post as CEO, but only after he finds someone to take his place. That all started with that Twitter poll that he posted over the weekend, where more than 57% of those who voted said he should resign as the head of the company. On Tuesday, after some silence, he tweeted, I will resign as CEO as soon as I find someone foolish enough to take the job. After that, I will just run the software and servers teams. Musk has faced criticism for a number of the decisions that he's made since the takeover. Some of those, like last week, include abruptly suspending the account of journalists who cover him, banning and subsequently unbanning links to other social media platforms, laying off the majority of his staff, and releasing internal communications. So, for perspective on all of this, let's bring in CNN's senior media reporter, Oliver Darcy. Wow. Lots going on. <laughs> um, who, do you think he already has someone in mind to take over? What's your sense of where this all stands?
22: I'm not sure because it is impossible to get into his head. But I don't think this is super surprising, given that he said last month... He was eventually going to want to step down and appoint someone else to run Twitter. And I think he's looking probably at those Tesla shares, and they have slid quite a bit since he took over Twitter, about 30%. And that's far worse than how other car companies have performed during that time. And so I think Tesla investors want him to stop sleeping on the couch at Twitter and actually focus on that company. And I think he knows that his wealth is tied to tesla shares and so if this continues it's not going to be good so uh not super surprising and it's unclear still how long is it going to take to find a new uh a new uh head of twitter he says it's there's no one really in line um there are a number of questions that still remain
3: well i think there are probably a lot of people i mean he's been running it and look at all of the back and forth (laughs) that we've we've talked about that don was kind of asking this question about what are other people, are there other, other sites people are going to, leaving Twitter, trying to use other platforms? Given just tweeting these days, you have this risk, if you're a reporter, of getting banned or of posting certain locations and these policy changes that happen just on a whim.
22: Yeah, like he banned the other day other people going to other sites. I think he was almost trying to lock the exit doors as people tried fleeing Twitter. Um, you know, I'm trying out some of those other ones. I'm on Mastodone, for instance, um, trying out to see if it works as well as Twitter. I think the bottom line is there is no Twitter replacement at the moment. But who's to say if Twitter actually you know, does become an untenable situation for people, um, whether those other sites could get some more funding and, and make, improve that uh, user experience.
3: Yeah. All right. Oliver Dorsey, thank you.
2: Thank you. Where's everybody else going to go? And before we get, listen, Bobani Jones is here. I would just want to bring him in. He's here to talk about Phoenix Suns and something else. <laughs> you said you won out. Yeah. Stay what? for what?
1: Like the question I have for everybody is stay for what? I think journalists care a lot about staying because we'd be able to parlay this into a whole lot of money, but... What exactly are we getting positive out of what the Twitter experience has evolved into over really the last five or six years? Like, when people be like, oh, we got to go find another one? Another hole. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm good. Like, I just think we all need out.
2: This is weird, but have I told you lately that I love you? I agree with you 100%. I'm I the just, only
3: person who likes Twitter at this table. It's not that I
2: dislike Twitter. Listen, I think there is an important place for Twitter in the world, but it has become a cesspool. Sure. Yeah, and it, it is but so toxic that we I, don't need
1: all this access yeah. to each other and yeah. our thoughts. Our yeah. thoughts are not that important. And most of them that we share ultimately wind up either being at best benign or at worst ultimately damaging. Yeah.
2: Okay. Thank you, Oliver. Thanks, Let's Oliver. talk about uh, why is here. We're here to, he's here to talk about in battle NBA owner Robert Sarver has agreed to sell his team, his teams uh, with an S, for $4 billion, according to multiple reports. That's a new record for an, an NBA franchise. Sarver began seeking buyers for the Phoenix Suns and the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury. That was back in September after he was suspended for a year and fined $10 million. An investigation determined that Sarver engaged in hostile and racially insensitive workplace behavior. A group led by mortgage tycoon Matt Ishbia is set to purchase a controlling stake in the two teams. Ishbia played college basketball at Michigan State, was part of the school's national championship team in 2000, and Bomani Jones is selling. I said, Bomani, question, he's not selling the team. <laughs> but the question is, Bomani, is selling the team for a record $4 billion, is that really much of a punishment?
1: Well, it's less of a punishment than the trades you have to make in order to get the dude out of the league. Like, the thing you can't account for in this is the team is his, right? Like, you can't just confiscate somebody's stuff. This is the same thing that happened with Donald Sterling. Now, if it wasn't a punishment, then the dude would have sold the team already. He could have got this $4 billion at another point, but he did not want to do that, right? So making people like this do things does ultimately serve as a punishment. It just so happens he's going to get $4 billion on the back end of it. You're not going to put a lot of consequences on super rich people that they actually feel monetarily.
2: You, you know, you took me back to when you said Donald Sterling, Sterling that, I mean... That was what was
1: that? 20, that was eight years ago. Going on so, 2012, wow.
2: 2013 that that happened. Listen, this investigation into Sarva's alleged behavior found that he repeatedly used the N word um, when recounting the statement of others, engaged in instances of inequitable conduct toward female employees, made inappropriate sex related comments in the workplace. Is there what stood out, I mean, about this investigation to you, all of
1: this? Well, Baxter Holmes of ESPN, who's been at the forefront of reporting this, has a report this week that was most interesting, which was after the word had gotten out that they got Sarver out of here, that there's an employee town hall. And the question was asked, what about the rest of these dudes? Because if we're saying that this was a larger cultural issue, then it doesn't just go away because the owner goes away. And so there were, I think, four executives specifically that it was put in place in the agreement that in order for them to be removed, it would have to be something in writing from Sarver to say it was okay for them, presumably because those guys knew where the bodies were buried. So now that Sarver has sold the team, what's so important now is that this franchise can actually start over because until they did this, a lot of people that apparently were still responsible for the sorts of behaviors that were going on with this team were still going to be there. That's why, is it a punishment to make them sell the team? No, but does that then allow the team to clean slate Yes, and that's probably more important than trying to put a hammer down on Sarver.
3: The other thing we've been watching this morning is the French Football Federation is calling out and condemning the racism that the French football team placed during the World Cup when they were playing Argentina. And it's not new, but seeing them condemn it, seeing them ask others to condemn it it is important for people to do that. that It is on this world stage kind of point.
1: Yeah, well, I have another question when this happens, and this gets in line with the hellhole that we were talking about. How many of these people who are sending these things are actually people, Hmm. right? Like when you wade through it and start figuring out who are the bots – who are the trolls? How many of them are actually people? Like, I'm sure that there is a decent number of people who came in and said these things. But it's so easy to amplify the idea of the animus because so many trolls are at place. And then we come around and we're like, man, all these people on Twitter are saying these things. And if you turned up the filters that they use to try to get rid of the bots, it may wind up being like my timeline does after I come on one of these shows, where if I look at everybody, it seems like the world's coming down. If I get rid of the new accounts and the ones with fake pictures, it's four people. Wow. Right. And that's that's why I say we need to break free from the hellhole, because it's been so manipulated to the point where I can't tell if people are people. And I do wonder about that in this case. They got a big, broad problem with racism in Europe. It's not a problem with racism in soccer. It's really a problem with racism in the world. This just happens to be the way that it comes across and it makes the game look bad. And so all the people come down like, hey, we condemn racism. But it ain't soccer that's making those people racist. It's racism that's making those people racist.
2: Bomani Jones, come back early and often. Taking <laughs> the turtleneck, too.
1: Appreciate it. And definitely the early part. You guys, uh, <laughs> the early we do. Hey, look, it's 8 30. <laughs> come on.
3: This is late to us. Now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what's sad.
2: Thanks, Bomani. Hey, listen, Bomani, season two of A Game Theory with Bomani Jones kicks off on HBO Max on January 20th. Department of Homeland Security has moved more than 9,000 migrants out of El Paso over the last week. We're going to talk about Title 42 and the surge in migrants with the mayor of El Paso, Texas. That's next.
3: And ahead of President Zelensky's surprise visit to Washington, President Biden just tweeted, I hope you're having a good flight, Vladimir. I'm thrilled to have you here. We have much to discuss, much more on his historic visit. That's ahead.
2: This is going to be crazy. So the Biden administration has told the Supreme Court that they should let Title 42 end. The White House wants the justices to reject an emergency bid from several GOP-led states to keep the Trump-era immigration policy in place while legal challenges play out. The White White House had been preparing for the end of the program, which officials say would have led to a surge in migrant crossing. So let's discuss now with Oscar Leeser. He is the Democratic mayor of El Paso, Texas, which has seen a huge influx of migrants in recent weeks. We're so glad that you could join us here on CNN this morning. Thank you so much. So you made the decision to call a state of emergency over the weekend. Why is that, sir?
23: Well, it was very important that uh, as the temperatures were starting to drop and the increases in crossings that uh, that are uh, visitors into our country, the asylum seekers, and also the citizens of El well Paso would be safe. And I, I, it was very evident with those temperatures, you know, near 20 degrees, that we really needed to uh, call a state of emergency. And it was important to me because I can tell you that. Uh, you know, it's, I've had a lot of people tell me you need to call say emergency, but really it needed to be at the right time when resources were needed, and this was the perfect time to do that at, at this point.
2: Listen, I'm wondering. We've been watching. I'm wondering if you're seeing it. Obviously, you're seeing it firsthand. But have you seen the pictures there on the border? Our David Culver is there, uh, and I mean, there are lines and lines of people. They're building campfires, trying to stay warm. Uh, so far, I think El Paso nine thousand migrants out of they've moved out of El Paso. The DHS has. Can your community s- sustain that many migrants?
23: Well, one of the things we are getting prepared whether Title 42 gets lifted or not, to make sure that uh, we have the the proper resources. Uh, now, can we sustain this uh, over a long-term period? Absolutely not, but it's very important. Our community is working together, whether it's the county, the state uh, uh, senator, or. Um, our Congresswomen, we're all working together as one. And, you know, we've uh, we've gotten two uh, empty schools. Uh, yesterday we signed a contract with our public schools to be able to house in that area. The Red Cross came down on Monday and has 10,000 CODs. So the federal government's been a, really a great partner to us to give us the resources that we need. So we are prepared whether Title 42 is lifted or not. We, we're working on having cuts in the convention center. The the, uh, the county judge is doing a really good job of uh, doing his resources so we can combine all our resources to work as one.
2: So, listen, the you know the Biden administration, they don't want this to be permanent. Um, I'm wondering how you feel about that. What do you want the, the administration to do at this point?
23: Well, like I said, right now, you know, we, we do know that... Uh, that, that we do have a broken a immigration process and it needs to be fixed. So, right now, as a community, we have a very warm, welcoming community, and we're working really hard. Like I said, to have the resources we need, and uh, we have received the resources to continue to help us. But, you know, this is strictly a band-aid on something that needs to be fixed in the in the very short term. Because, like you said a, minute, a minute ago, it's something that, that we not we cannot sustain.
2: I had the Arkansas governor on, Asa Hutchinson, who is a Republican. And he says, while the buck does stop with the administration, he does believe the onus is on Congress uh, to act. He believes it's a Band-Aid as well. Do you think there's room for bipartisanship in Washington? And would you like to see that? Obviously, yes.
23: Well, it's obvious that uh, we need to work together and regardless of parties, because this is a, a U.S.-United States uh, problem that we all need to work together. It's not an El Paso problem. It's a lot bigger than El Paso. And I honestly believe it's bigger than the United States. We need to work with the U.N. to work with other countries to be able to come up with a program that becomes humanitarian for everyone.
2: Mayor Lee, sir, thank you for your time. Best of luck to you and Merry Christmas. Thanks.
23: Thank you. Merry Christmas to you all. Thank you.
2: So this morning's number is my age, 23. Harry Inton is here to break it all down.
3: All right, you're looking at pictures of Marquette, Michigan and Minneapolis, Minnesota. More like Minnesota. I'm shivering just looking at these pictures and it's going to get worse a fast approaching holiday storm, which is being called a winter bomb cyclone, is set to bring dangerously cold temperatures to millions of Americans across the country from the Northeast to the Rockies. So CNS, senior data reporter Harry Anton is here. Harry, we don't like being cold.
2: No. Yeah. Oh. Bomb cyclone this time.
31: Last two. We've had a number of bombs. cyclones. No, it was like February. Yeah, we've had a number of bomb cyclones. why
2: Why did it go from 23 my age to 21? What happened? Okay.
31: So let's talk about this morning's number. What is it? This morning's number is 21, New York City's Christmas Eve Uh, high-temperature forecast. The temperature changed. The high-temperature forecast went from 23 down to 21, the new forecast, so even colder for Christmas Eve after a high temp of 54 degrees on Friday. So we're going to see a 23-degree temperature drop. Now, I want to put this in some historical perspective, Christmas Eve weather, and expand it out to just more than New York City to give you an idea of how far-reaching these cold temperatures are. So we got 21 in New York. 27 in Atlanta, 9 in Chicago. You want to go down to Miami to escape the cold, but it's only 62 degrees there for a high temp. Look at this. The coldest temperature in the last 80 years for, for Christmas Eve. Yes, in New York. Yes, in Atlanta. Second coldest in Chicago. Third coldest in Miami. It is the first time all four would have a bottom three high temp if this does, in fact, happen. So we're talking freezing temperatures up and down the eastern seaboard and even into the Midwest. Okay,
2: so I live here. Yes. (laughs) I used to live there. Yes. And there. Yes. By the lake. Yes. When you get that lake effect snow and the wind coming off the lake, it is crazy. And... I'm going here after Christmas. All right, you're, so there you go. So you got you got the whole thing covered. We, for me.
31: we got the whole complete don board. But I do have I do have a bit of good news though. What Yes,
3: you go to the North Pole next. <laughs> you're going to the North Pole.
31: Santa will still be able to deliver your presents because it's minus forty is the average winter temperature in the North Pole. So don't worry, kids. Santa is well on his way, and even for the Jews like me, Santa will deliver. He'll team up with Hanukkah Harry. It's all going to be great. Hanukkah Harry. But I also have bad news for you. <laughs> The energy bills are going to be sky high, because look at the utility gas prices year over year. Up 15%, electricity up 14%, depending on how exactly you heat your home. So look, good news is Santa will be able to deliver gifts. The bad news is you're going to pay higher energy prices. But I do have one question for you guys. Do you prefer, would you rather live through a really hot summer or a really cold
2: winter?
28: Hot
3: summer. Hot summer. We're Southerners, so uh, you know. It's, like
2: when I, it's our nature. When I first moved to the Northeast and I got went to the beach, I was like, "Why is this water so cold? We I, like we like bath water. It's like, like bath we go water to the, in the beach Gulf. in the
3: summertime, yeah. like in July, yeah. which yeah. no
31: one else does." Yeah. Uh, I, I I must admit, I prefer a really cold winter. It's why I went to school in New Hampshire. But you know what? We are pretty equal, though slightly more people. I mean, come on, pass. look
2: really. Is there a choice? Is that a real
31: choice? You know what? You can always put on more layers. You can't take off so many. Those people
3: There's... who answer, don't fall off the ski lift like I do. I'm going to go to the beach instead. All
31: right. It's safer, I guess, except for the <laughs> sharks in the water. Be careful of those. Thank you, Harry. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Harry.
31: Harry. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right. President Zelensky's surprise visit to Washington comes on the heels of the anniversary of another historic trip. We're going to look back at history ahead.
2: Hanukkah Harry.
30: Hi, <laughs> and my sister's in the studio. <laughs>
3: All right, it was 81 years ago tomorrow that Winston Churchill visited Washington as the world was in the throes of World War II. Pearl Harbor had just been hit by Japanese forces in an attack that killed more than 2,400 Americans and drew the U.S. into the war. President Roosevelt, after declaring December 7th a day of infamy, had expressed concern about the prime minister sailing across the Atlantic. But Churchill did so anyway to fortify his nation's most important alliance. It was during that visit that Churchill addressed a joint session of Congress the day after Christmas, rallying the American people with these words and stealing them for what was to come.
23: What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget?
3: Churchill that day became only the second foreign leader to speak before a joint session of Congress in American history. Today, President Zelensky is going to do the same. That trip is, I'm I'm a historical nerd, of course, but he was there for three weeks staying at the White House.
2: If my memory serves me well, I think it was one of a number, I think three speeches that he gave, um, but that one was... the main one, right, speaking in front of Congress, but everyone, everyone is going to be watching this moment today. I think all cameras, all eyes are going to be on Zelensky. And it kind of reminded me of the moment that you were there covering it. Do you remember when um, when Boris Johnson went to Kyiv and they yeah. were calling that sort of a Churchill moment uh, because he, they were walking around the Capitol as the war was raging around them. And I think Kyiv had just been um, Ukraine had just taken back Kyiv from the Russians. So we'll see what these moments play out, how they look with the current president of the United States meeting with Zelensky. Yeah,
3: and just the historical parallels. You know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. But mm-hmm. to see a U.S. president concerned about him coming across to address Congress, and now Zelensky's doing the same.
2: Yeah. That, the security that this visit took, Yeah, that's a yeah. study. That's going to be a study. Uh, and a big story that we're going to talk about. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We appreciate it. we got
3: a busy oh, day. We forgot. We have a special guest a in special the house. Guest. We've replaced Anderson Cooper as the barista here on set. <laughs> and with my That's sister, Kelsey. Kelsey, who is here visiting. Hi, Hi
2: Kelsey. Hi. Enjoy. Where All we're going
3: right, for New breakfast. York. And CNN Newsroom starts right now. <laughs> That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcast at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.